welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back, BFG. Good morning, Vietnam. Oh, wait, wrong show. <laughs> wrong show. It's been six weeks since we've last done an episode. This is episode 21. This is it. This is our final show. This is the final show. Well, we're going to have a kind of like a finale kind of thing. Yes, but... we are. Yes, but this is our final literary um, analysis. analysis. Yeah. Discourse. How you feel about that? I, I, it's, I'm surprised. We, I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, and I'm not kind of surprised. I know our, I know our intent and our motivation would get get us to where we were, but it's still pretty amazing that we've gone through all sixty stories. It is, but you know, we've done four shows together now, and of the four shows we've done, this has definitely been the most onerous. I remember starting out on this thinking that, oh yeah, well, you know, we just read all those 14 Ian Fleming books and it's basically about the same length, the same the same weight. This is so much bigger than the Ian Fleming series. I mean, it, it's grown, it's evolved. Here we are looking down the barrel of our last six stories and, you know, it's it's been awesome, but man, it is so much bigger than our last project. Yeah, it's definitely like... Uh... Like I am, I'm glad that we went through it, and I and I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. But at the same time, I'm kind of glad, you know, the project is coming to to, to an end. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I, you know, like I feel that you know we're kind of uh, in in the denouement here, and I'm feeling all of that. Uh, what's the word? Uh, catharsis. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm happy as well, like you. I mean, I'm I'm glad that I'm going to start seeing the back of Sherlock Holmes now, not because. I don't enjoy them. I mean, I totally do. But this has been, you know, a year and what, eight months we've been doing? No, longer now. This has been like, I don't Almost know, since, since February of, or January or February of 2017, we've been doing this. And it's now looking it's like, eight, looking it's like 18. I'm thinking of my math. I could be wrong. Is that like 18 months or it's less more than, than 18? that? 18 months would have brought us to like June or July. And we're now in September, uh-huh. October. So, yeah, this has been awesome. Episode 21. Um, Six weeks after episode 20, where we looked at four stories, now we're looking at six. Why six? Because this is us finishing the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, and we think we can do these last six uh, a pretty decent service today. Some of them are quite quick. I think we might even be, I'm putting it out there, we might even be spending more time on these stories than Doyle did when he wrote them. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. Well, I remember I was reading his, uh, his uh, biography there by Andrew Lysett, and there's a part where he was writing to one of his editors, and he was saying how, you know, the ideal situation for him, which he'd finally met with these later home stories, was that he could write a story in the morning and play a game of golf in the afternoon. It really feels that way. It, yeah, some of these certainly do, yeah. But uh, the guy had talent, you know. I mean, it takes talent to whip through a story, even if you are rehashing, and even if you are working on a formula, it still takes talent to get it done. 
Oh, absolutely. And fortitude and uh, what's the word? It's the perseverance of to keep on going for it. Because if anything, if he really, really wanted to, he could just got more, you know, more involved with his fairy culture and, and, and not even focused on it. Like, it seems like something that he didn't have to do, but he felt that he was obligated to do. That's right. I really believe that. But I, I believe that, though, that might have also sucked the soul out of his writing a little bit. It certainly sucked the soul out of his Holmes writing. Um, but hey, yes. we, we, we've said that. And we'll say more about that in our great finale. As you rightly point out, despite my platitudes, this is not the last episode. It's our last literary analysis. And we're going to come back together and do kind of a fun uh, salute with the rankings and just a little bit more um, biography notes. And, but, you know, we'll, we'll wrap it up quite nicely, much like we have with the Ian Fleming series we did a while back with some rankings and some fun category chats. Yeah, talk about pop culture with Holmes and stuff like that, too. I have, a, I have some knowledge on that, so I can, I can share some, some of my thoughts. Um, I'd also like to add that, you know, the next couple, this story, the six stories that we're doing today, there are, I, I would say, a, I'm not trying to, I'm not commenting on the quality of these stories at this point, but what I am like to comment on, what I would like to comment on is that the, a lot of the mysteries are kind of have an unconventional ending compared to the previous home stories in, the, in, 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 the, in these six stories we're about to dive into. So I just wanted to kind of to leave that, you know, in the back of your mind to say that, like, is this lazy, is this, is this lazy writing when he has to come up with these endings or twists, so to speak, in these last issues? Or is it actually him just trying to try something different? I think there's probably a bit of both. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And that, I, I mean, mean, that I know that sounds like a cop out, but I do think that Doyle, you know, I, I think like a lot of writers, I don't think he's any different necessarily, but yes, he doesn't want to be writing these stories. But once he writes the story, even if it's a lazier story, I still think he's he's trying to make it an enjoyable thing for himself to produce. Well, I myself will never forget in this batch of six stories and the whole Holmes canon that the best villain of the entire Holmes canon, no, not Moriarty. Not Irina Adler, not Roy Lott, or uh, the guy, I forget his name, in the Copper Beaches, etc. I'm talking about our friend Sineas Capilata. <laughs> but we'll get into him later on. <laughs> or her. Or her. Or it. Or it. We'll, we'll get there. I don't, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how they identify themselves as, so I, I it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gender neutral. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Hey, it fits this. It fits at this time in this day and age. So why not? Yeah, yeah. Well, we got a, we got a fun day loud in the head, don't we? Because after our episode today, we've also got a fantasy hockey pool to start on. Oh yeah. Anyway, that's a different story, but and and a different uh, aspect of our lives. But we're here today to talk about the six final stories uh, as published, not necessarily in the chrono uh, the chronological order of what they're written, but the way they were published, at least in the um, magazine, kind of jumping them around. We're or in to... the in the Sherlock Holmes Penguin Complete version, yeah, which which seems to which seems to follow the American tradition of the publishing and jump the stories around a, a little bit compared to yours. But I think the last six are on the same way are on the same line, though. So. Yeah, no, I think I think the last two volumes we've kind of been working from the same thing. Um, yeah. I think we've we've got these in the same order. So uh, we're going to be looking today at the problem of Thor Bridge. We're going to be looking at the uh, adventure of the creepy man, and boy, is it an adventure! Um, the adventure of the lion's mane, the veiled lodger, uh, Shaskamold Place, and finally the retired colorman. 
and we'll go through those six stories the same way we have all of our other ones by looking at the pipes, our acronym for scoring, P for principles, I for investigation, P for perpetrators, E for environment, and S for secondary players or characters. Pipes. Yeah. Yeah. Like those pipes. So look, we got a lot to do. We do have a lot to chat about as well, uh, but let's just bring it in as we go because I'm, I'm eager to get started here with the problem of Thor Bridge. Yeah, the problem of Thor Bridge. Let's begin that. So publication history. Uh, the UK got, a, got ahead of the, of the Yanks on this one. UK publication date was February 1922 in the Strand, whereas the American publication was March 1922 in Hearst's. That's right. Have you got and, any um, of our friends at Goodreads, their opinions? I do, but before I bring on to our Sorry? Goodreads friends, I want to point out that this was not originally called The Problem of Store Bridge. Hmm. Uh, it was first called Watson's Box, all right, hmm. and then went through a series of titles such as Rushmere Bridge or The Adventure of the Second Chip, okay, until settling on Thor Bridge. So I just thought I'd bring that little informational tidbit. And having read the story now um, and analyzed it, how do you feel about that title, the, the revision? I think it's pretty good. Um, I, I kind of like the adventure of the second chip, to be honest with you. It has a little bit of like ambiguity, like, hmm, what is this about? Kind of, you know, whereas, oh, Thor Bridge. So this will obviously involve a bridge of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then I got nothing until I read it, right? So, yeah. All right, so Goodreads. One person says, a not so intriguing plot represented as a very complex one with an unexpected and a little too fabricated end yet enjoyed it a lot as always okay i've always thought this was one of holmes finer observations mm-hmm. unpredictable one guy says okay oh sorry that was my computer screen going over the other side. I had to put the cursor pad to put the scroll bar back. Sorry, predictable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Right. But you never, you never saw that coming. No, no, um, not from you. No. No, not at all. Not at all. So that's pretty much it. Predictable. I always thought this was one of Holmes' finer observations. Okay, observations, I guess they mean the stories, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. Um, and uh, and one person, in, but despite you know how they found how formulaic and fabricated they found it, they enjoyed it. So let's see if we come across the same emotions when it comes to this story. But I think we need to kind of set up a little preface. So how about that plot summary? Okay, I think our plot summaries are probably going to be important today because we're going to we won't be rushing through our pipes certainly, but we'll be doing a more economic job of getting there. So our plot summaries, I think, will probably take on a more important fashion maybe than they than they have in some some of our previous episodes. So the problem of Thor Bridge. Well, Watson opens this particular tale with a Raiders of the Lost Cases tease, informing readers that locked away somewhere deep within the vaulted chambers and holdings of Cox and Company Bank of Charing Cross sits a battered tin box holding a trove of unpublished case files from his time with Sherlock Holmes. Some of these cases were successes, some were failures, and some can never see the light of contemporary day because of the subjects involved and the sensitivities sworn. Wow. That's an attractive and a provoking revelation for those readers desperate for more of the great detective. Watson closes his introduction by staking the claim to being an eyewitness in this particular problem of Thor Bridge. Now, we may be forgiven for wondering at this point exactly how he would refer to himself in all the other cases, if not an eyewitness. But perhaps the semantics are best left to the philosophers. Let it be known, regardless, that a deliberate attempt has been made to open this story of the casebook with determined gravitas. Well, good. 
I mean, frankly speaking, having sat through the tedium of the last few stories, barring the allowance of Garadeb's 1, 2, and 3, the time is definitely nigh for a wee bit of gravity. But do we get it, Bowman? I'm hearing you scream, Josh. Your collective, your listening collective palpitation is tangible. I sense the cloying beads of suspense upon your brow, BFG. So let me put you and the listeners out of our misery and answer the question simply. Yes, I think so. Kind of. You see, motivation for involvement arrives in this tale when Oric Goldfinger, no, sorry, wait, Neil Gibson, the Victorian equivalent probably, the implores, King. implores Sherlock Holmes to exonerate the children's, his children's governess, Miss Grace Dunbar, of murder charges. Gibson's wife, Maria, was discovered dead upon the bridge leading to their estate, lying in a pool of blood. And in her head was lodged a bullet, and in her hand was clutched a note. A note from Grace Dunbar, agreeing to meet her there. Dun-dun-dun. Mm. All these and other facts, like a recently discharged revolver found in Grace's room, made for a quick wrap to the official investigation. And soon, the beautiful governess found herself arrested, tried, and found guilty of murder. Now, complications existed within the marriage, as you might expect when Mr. Gibson grew tired of his hot wife's clinginess and sharpened his horny gaze upon Miss Dunbar. Though she spurned his advances, choosing to remain on payroll only, not the matrimonial bed, Grace soon found herself at the receiving end of Mrs. Gibson's hot Brazilian temper. Yep, enter stage left, another fiery foreign lady. Well, as Robert Frost says, way leads on to way, and a number of confrontations with Lady Gibson, who was growing more detached from level emotion each day, had Grace feeling quite concerned. And then, bang, the supposed shooting and the death of Maria. Some mm. of these facts, particularly the no longer interested in my wife's stuff, were shared with Holmes only after he accused Gibson on holding out full details. Like all powerful men, Gibson had difficulty dealing with the fact that Grace didn't return his affections. But I guess he's still somehow a decent guy because he's appealing for her release, even though the odds seem fairly stacked against her. Shame side-tabled and egos broken, Holmes can think clearly. Now, he agrees to visit the scene. Of the facts presented and observed, a couple stand out. First of all, the idea of Grace Dunbar shooting Maria and then tossing the weapon into her dressing closet instead of the river under the bridge remains quite puzzling. It's a decidedly counterintuitive thing for a murderer to do. And if the murder weapon was one of two, why couldn't the other one be found among Mr. Gibson's amateur armory? And finally, a noticeable chip in the underside brickwork of the bridge's railing toys with Holmes's reconstruction of events, we suspect from his interest upon the bridge that this is the revelation's key fish nibbling at the bait, and so does Holmes. But for now, it's playing the long game with the great detective. Not Sherlock the chip and Watson. I thought it would be. Pardon me? Not the chips I thought it would be. Continue. <laughs> Sherlock and Watson chew over these points while Gray sits nervously in a cell until the clouds of confusion break and the explanation becomes clear. Rushing back to Thorbridge, Holmes borrows Watson's revolver, ties it to a heavy stone, dangles it over the edge, and simulates a suicide to demonstrate how, upon firing, the gun would leave Mrs. Gibson's hand, which supported the weight of a stone, and fall into the river below, catching on the brick railing first on its way over. Hmm. So, Maria Gibson wasn't murdered at all. Tempest-tossed into lustful vengeance by her husband's neglect, Maria would stage her own murder and frame Grace Dunbar. She knew that killing Grace wouldn't take or wouldn't bring her husband back. That unrelenting ship had already sailed, but she could at least become the eternal victim in her own dastardly play while bringing the beautiful governess down in the real world. So she planted her husband's revolver in Grace's cupboard, took the other one for herself to use, and set up her rendezvous with death on Thor Bridge. 
Poor Grace didn't know what she was getting into when she responded, quite hopefully, to that letter. She was probably thinking that the air between her and Mrs. G could finally be cleared. Ouch, Maria, that's nasty. Well, she might have gotten away with it too if it weren't for that detective and his slobbering pooch. So, Holmes instructs the police to drag the river to collect the murder weapon. And Watson's revolver too, if they can be bothered. He would eventually <laughs> come to relay the story, after all. Getting the poor chap his pistol back is the very least that they could do. Boy, that Maria sure had a chip on her shoulder, eh? Oh, you've just been waiting, haven't you? Oh, believe me. Yeah, yeah. Weeks, Boys. man. Weeks. 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 <laughs> <laughs> right, so there you go. There's a plot summary. And I right. guess it's time for us to light our pipes, our final pipes of the series. Is this true? Well, we'll have to light them next week, won't we? Yeah, so second last lighting of the pipes. What do you got today? Crack cocaine. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Heroin. No, 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 no. I was going for straight, like, uh, old school opium. How about that? All right. Some of the last This will be a very different find, find show today. Very different show. Here we go. Pipes are lit. And you and I are prepared to analyze. So, my friend, yes. Josh... Over there in Ottawa, what'd you think of the principles here in this story? I found that uh, Holmes, uh, he's pleasant and appreciative of Watson over the breakfast table in the opening passages. I really like that. And those hard-boiled eggs must be really good. Yeah, um, can, I, can I pick up on something with that? Sorry to interject so quickly, but there's a yeah. mention here at the beginning of the story of a new cook. And I'm wondering who's in charge of the food at Baker Street if it's not Mrs. Hudson. Yeah, where's Mrs. Hudson? That's the question. Hmm. Well, do you have an answer? Because I don't. I don't know. One of their Baker Street regulars? Oh, maybe. I guess but so. But does Holmes want him cooking for him, though? That's I, 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 her question. I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure it's that other maid that they mentioned, pro- pro- probably. Because Miss Hudson does have, like, her own staff, I believe, a minimal staff. She has, like, a, a page boy, I think she has. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she also, I think she mentioned that she did have a cook at some point. All right. Well, it's, um, who knows, right? Who knows, indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know what? I could, if you want me to. I know it's really early to be doing to play playing this game, but I could let you know what the Sherlockians are thinking about that point. Yeah, let's see what the Sherlockians are are thinking about it because uh, because that just that that to me like needs to be figured out first of all before all other <laughs> all other matters are tended to. Okay, well. Previously, Mrs. Hudson had handled the cooking at Baker Street. As Christopher Redmond recalls, the incident in The Three Students, when Mrs. Hudson promises green peas at 7.30, gives no indication that they were to be prepared by anyone other than herself. So Holmes' reference to a new cook here must mean that Mrs. Holmes has finally hired someone else to handle kitchen duties, or else that Holmes formerly had employed a cook who has mysteriously never been mentioned. Hmm. Hmm. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank the Sherlockians for giving me a moment here to have a bite of toast. So, mm-hmm. well, that was really nice. Um, if we're going to like, look at the situation um, regarding the breakfast table, I think that part's pretty much done with. Yeah. Okay. So, is that all you got on the principles? You like <laughs> no, them together eating no, breakfast? No, no, no. I'm just having a bit of a... Um, magnification issue. I'm just going to fix, resolve this very quickly here. Well, I'm quite happy to, to, to steam ahead with my principles, Mark, if you want. You go, ahead and, you go ahead and do that. Well, I think that this is the best time, the best story the Holmes and Watson have shared together as a team. 
and I do hesitate in using that word, but as a team since the illustrious client, when Watson um, was pretending to be an expert in Ming pottery and, and uh, saucers and things like that. I really liked them in this story. I thought both characters mm. had agency. I liked how we could see Holmes really chewing this one over. And it, it also gave me uh, a taste of something I haven't had in a while, which was a more surgical type Holmes, really trying to pick apart angles and looking at, you know, brickwork. And I, I enjoyed that. I, I like the scientist and the method that he uses. This has been yeah. a scientific method type of story. And, and I thought it was good. I enjoyed yes. it. And I thought the two of them worked really well together. I liked yeah. the tease. I did, you know, I mean, I, I spoke lightly of it in my plot summary, but I do like the idea of that of that tin box containing all kinds of great stories. It's a real tease to the public, but the fact that Watson's entrusted to it as well, I, I like that. I like the friendship that's hinted at, you know, beneath the surface, and of course, the agency involved with the revolver and, and all of that, the two of them on this Thorbridge yes. adventure. I did really like this. This is story, what, this is short story number 50 now, I think, 50. of 56, and it's uh, it's not the best, but it's one of the better ones we've seen in a long time, in my opinion. So I went 4.5. For the principles? I did, yeah. I did 4.5 as well. Um, just to share some of my thoughts, I found like, you know, after the breakfast table, the appreciation continues throughout this tale. Uh, Watson is legitimately Holmes's partner in anti-crime in the story. Yes, uh, that's a good Watson, point. Watson does play the role of audience surrogate when he asks to know Holmes' deductions and authorial mouthpiece when he deems that the evidence against Miss Dunbar is damning. Even so, the strength of this story is that we are so both enjoying the characters and the mystery. Um, Holmes, is, uh, he, his method of solving the mystery with the revolver string stone is fantastic. Uh, believable detective work. It's based on logic, evidence, and knowledge of the psychology of the quote-unquote victim. Uh, Holmes, admitting that he has taken on Watson's trait of telling a story backward, it's a very affectionate kind of dig, probably with only the veil of annoyance. So it's kind of like a, you know, quick pro quo kind of thing between the two of them. Yeah, that's um, a good observation. When Holmes is unafraid of the Gold King on page um, I have here is 1059, uh, Holmes' indifference to the pure size of his clients as well as their political power does not move Holmes in the slightest. Uh, Holmes displays some of, the, some of his rare chivalry towards Miss Dunbar, but he's also true to character in treating her in a similar but slightly toned down manner as he did with Gibson earlier. Um, another great section is Watson's excellent description of Miss Dunbar. I love how the nobility of her personage, not of her sex, but of her own integrity, is focused here. Watson does not objectify her. He sympathizes with her as a human being and sees her metal regardless of gender. Um, the interview with Gibson is really compelling. Uh, it has like a tit for tat, how he called Gibson's bluff, and he got the information he needed. Yeah, I like Holmes that. Seemed, yeah, he seems to be in a constant state of, Holmes, I mean, a state of, state of turning, you know, gear turning in this story. He's having these eureka moments throughout as he comes to his conclusion, as opposed to of an info dump of motivation and without the pantomime of keeping the smallest things to himself. We as readers are invited to follow the process with curiosity and emotional investment, as opposed to being condescended in the final passages. Mm. Um, and really, you know, that's why I gave the principles 4.5 uh, out of 5. I, I just thought, like, there, maybe there was something a little bit missing. I don't know what it is exactly. I can't quite quantify it. But even still, 4.5 is a great score, for I think, for the, for the principles in this case. It is indeed, yeah. I, I mean, we, we see eye to eye on that. There's good rapport in this story. If you're looking for a tale... 
And if you're, if you're looking for a good Sherlock Holmes and Watson adventure, like the two of them, Watson not just telling the story, but being part of it, then I think, yeah, you could do a lot worse than hit this one. I really recommend watching the uh, the the Grenada, the uh, Jeremy mm-hmm. Brett uh, adaptation of it. It's really it's very close, very 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 faithful to the story. Yeah, it is. I watched that a, a bit a month ago, I guess now uh, with my wife, and she she quite liked it as well. Yeah, the whole thing with the gun is all set up very well and stuff. And Miss Dunbar comes off as a, as a stronger, as does come off like as another typical Holmesian damsel. You know what I mean? She does. But while we're on the point of her, and I suppose more particularly Holmes uh, as a principal. Did, I mean, what did you make of how quickly he was taken by her? Like, it's a little bit ironic, I felt, considering how he criticizes Watson so often for, for kind of letting appearance guide his judgment. But here, and in another story that we'll see today, he lets appearance just, like, he believes that she's a trustworthy person just by looking at her. And I, I, I'm not, I know that he's compiling that observation of her appearance with other facts that he's already computed in his mind about the revolvers and whatnot. But it seemed to me a little strange how quickly he took to her. I think Holmes has a type, and I have. I think people like Dunbar, people like Violet Hunter. I think he has a type, and it may not be like we don't want to look at it as sort of like a like an attractive. I think it's attracted to her, or it's a sexual thing. I think it's more about um, it's almost like a fatherly or avuncular kind of feeling towards some of these women. Hmm. Fair enough. I'd be, I'd be curious to see what the Sherlockians think about that of Holmes as being kind of like. Um, almost like a father or avuncular figure to the, um, you know, to, 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 to some of these. Uh, uh, let me have a look here. Let me see if uh, Les Klinger's got any notes about the Sherlockian opinion on that. Whenever I think of whenever I think of you never say Les Klinger, I think of Mash. Why? Wasn't there a character called Klinger? He was like a, a crossdresser or something like that. I don't know. I think so. Well. I think the Sherlockian opinion, at least the one that's the one that's given here on that note, is one of kind of disbelief. A uh, writer by the name of Nathan L. Bengis, or Ben Bengi, I don't know, uh, he marvels at it, uh, quoting, Is this the same man who boasted of never making exceptions for appearance? <laughs> he takes I think just it's... one look at Miss Dunbar, and that somehow is enough to persuade Holmes that she is wholly innocent of any wrongdoing. My headcanon says Holmes is being over these years, and I I find I kind of feel it. I think Arthur Conan Doyle has been doing this, and I could be wrong. You could disagree with me, but I think uh, Watson is a a socializing agent for Holmes, um, and I think he's seeing things the way Watson sees things um, more and more. And I, I I just think he's naturally just creating his own kind of social relationships up to the point where he actually cultivates one in uh, the Lion's Mane. Hmm. Well, arguably. Arguably, of course, but still. Right, okay, so that's two, two 4.5s then. What about the investigation? What would you, what'd you say about it? It's a stone cold whodunit, uh, well executed. Our principles shine throughout. Uh, the clues are sprinkled generously throughout, and it's not, it has an out-of-the-blue kind of sledgehammer moment to us. Um, there's a few red herrings in the sol- and a, in the solid supporting cast. Um but they're brought to excellence, I think, as a whole because of the original solution to the case. Um, there's nothing better than having like a whole, having like a story centered around a certain premise, and then how that premise affects all the characters in the story. And then because of that, the plot driving the characters, the characters come across in their motivations as real people, mm-hmm. and that that to me makes a great mystery story or any kind of story if you think about it. Um, opening paragraph by Watson, it's kind of off the cuff, it's less formal than we are used to. And it creates a fun energy from the start. 
I like how the main body of the story centers around two interviews. First, we have Gibson, and then the second one, Miss Dunbar. Whereas the opening paragraph and the bridge sequence are the equivalent of call and respond, you know, problem and solution. Mm-hmm. Good observation there, too. You're sharp on this one. Yeah, I really, like, I really, really enjoy this one, actually. Um, the red herring of Mr. Bates to build up Gibson as the villain, as well as his backstory regarding Gibson and the victim, is a great device. Azure little details like the revolver in the wardrobe, the chip off the parapet off on the bridge, the letter, the bluffing of Gibson by Holmes, all these kind of organically fit to the solution of the puzzle. So, uh, I don't know, man. Investigation, I actually gave five out of five on this one. Wow, nice one. It's been a while since uh, since we've had a full score on that. Yeah, so investigation's think, always tricky. I think for the, uh, well, you know, for for, uh, for a five, this is what we get. We haven't Ooh. had it in a while. Not for investigation. There you go. I didn't go five. I went four because I thought it was a rock-solid investigation. I didn't like it as much as... Uh, a couple of other ones I've seen. I, I do think we've got some better stories out there, but a four is still a good mark, you know, yeah. for me. You know, I mean, our fives and fours, I think we got a good edge on, on what those things actually mean, and I feel like this is a good solid four. There were a couple of things, though, that I, I didn't get in this that I wanted. Like, I didn't have any closure about Grace Dunbar. Like, am I am I meant to believe that eventually she did go off with, with Gibson? Uh, like, what happened there, you know, in terms yeah, of the, exoneration? I would have liked true. to have... a little bit of closure there for me personally um and i also kind of think that <coughs> pardon me uh with respect to grace uh, i know it's not technically an investigation point but i did kind of agree to a point with the sherlockians like I, I would like to have seen holmes be a little bit more careful at investigating her involvement um you know you can argue with me that he kind of does that through the, the pistols and the, the point is you know, he's got a man, he's got a client in Gibson who's already lied once about his involvement in this case. And so for him to then trust his judgment uh, upon apology to go and, oh, this girl, you know, will definitely tell you the true story. She's innocent. I felt like that's that's a little unbelievable even more because the guy who tells him to trust her has already lied to him. And so I kind of feel <laughs> like, eh, I don't know. It, it, it was just a little point, but it did kind of niggle at me a little. So um, I went for a four. But I thought it was a very well-written story and certainly compelling and engaging. A nicely written story that, I mean, getting back to what we said at the outset here today, I feel like this is an example of a story that Conan Doyle didn't dislike writing. I think he was into this one. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting context I also got down here about um, the gold rush in Brazil, which kind of led to Gibson becoming rich. It's only a short paragraph. I'm happy to read that for you. Yeah, sure. And just a reminder, in case for some odd, strange, backwards reason, you've just tuned into this show at episode 21. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're pulling a lot of our annotations from Les Klinger's uh, excellent annotated Holmes canon. And so some of these notes, um, some of these notes while researched by myself and Josh are, are also coming from uh, Klinger's annotations like this one. Brazil experienced a gold rush starting in 1695 when large deposits were discovered in what is now Minas Geras. I'm sorry, pronunciation is, uh, I'm sure it's off, but the discovery had a tremendous impact on the settlement and economy of Brazil. Prospectors quickly established mining towns and slaves were brought in from sugar plantations and the gold mines in Africa. With so much money coming into the region, the Portuguese government moved the colonial capital from Salvador to Rio de Janeiro in 1763. The boom lasted only as long as the original deposits held out, although mining continued on a far more reduced scale. 
Despite the failure of many minds, however, as late as 1888, the Encyclopedia Britannica still alluringly promised its readers that, quote, the underground wealth of the country is at yet almost untouched, end quote. Whether Gibson made his fortune in Brazilian gold or in some western state, as seems more likely, is unknown. But that's the context behind Gibson and presumably his meeting the wife Maria, who I liked. You said it a couple of moments ago, um, believable characters. I believe in this. I believe in a woman who is kind of a kept woman. Yes, she's, you know, an aristocrat and she's a, a rich foreign beauty, but these women were still kept women, weren't they, on these yes. estates? And I can totally believe her husband um, having eyes for a younger governess looking after the children, and she just, you know, she becomes a specter in her own property, doesn't she? She and really does. The desperation with which Maria kind of goes after, in, in these descriptions by Doyle, goes after her husband, um, they may seem obsessive, but I, you know, this is one of these foreign women that I don't mind believing in the foreignness of if that makes yes. any sense. Like, I mean, their tropical nature. Well, that's exactly what he says. Um, I, I just read that little bit there for you. Um, tropical, tro 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 tropical nature is a new brain fever. Well, she, she was a creature of the tropics, a Brazilian by birth, as no doubt you know. No, it had escaped me. Tropical by birth and tropical by nature, a child of the sun and of passion. She'd loved him as, su as such women can love, but when her own physical charms had faded, I'm told that they were once great, there was nothing to hold him. And that just makes you think of, well, makes you think of age, I suppose. And it leads nicely into our next story because she probably could have used some of that, some of that yeah. serum that the professor, that the Dr. Pressman or whatever his name has. So do Spider-Man villains. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. But I guess what uh, I'm saying is I, I like the context and I like the character and, and everything fit here. So um, I'm going to be a little bit, uh, unorthodox here. I'm just going to rattle through the rest of my pipes because I feel like I've already told you about the secondary players here. Um, I went for a four with my perpetrators. Uh, the environment was just whatever. Uh, it was okay, just another big estate. But the bridge mm -hmm. was quite cool and the way the bridge operated as a set piece in the story I really liked. So I yeah. went 3.5 there because outside of the bridge there really wasn't a lot going on. Um, and I went for a four with secondary players too. So that was 4.5, 4, 4, 3, 5, and 4, bringing me to a total of 20. Woo, all right. Well, um, now we gave, now you know I gave a 5 out of 5 to the um, investigation. Indeed. I gave um, a 4.5 for uh, Mrs. Gibson. Okay. Um, Maria Pinto, you know, the late Mrs. Gibson, uh, we talked yep. about tropical nature. It's the new brain fever. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. something I thought of. It's pretty funny in my head. <laughs> uh, both Gibson and Dunbar, they use that term to describe, you know, the posthumous perpetrator, right? Um, she adds this growing, she, she adds to the growing tend of passionate South American wives we've seen lately, particularly in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. However, her being both victim and perpetrator is clever. Um, but I'll say this for her, and this is where I kind of deducted some points from, um, but not clever enough for me to look past the kind of unoriginal and borderline racist slash sexist motivations. Um, so I kind of differed a little bit with, with you yeah. on that. All right. Um, but I, I see where you're coming from. Um, I see through it. I, um, I see through a 21st century lens, however. So narratively, the motivations do work as a solution of the case hinges on the tropical nature and its cruel depths. You know, it's kind of self-destruction as revenge. And that's pretty tragic. Mm -hmm. um, what weakens the late Mrs. Gibson is, as a perpetrator for me is that we are only told about her character through others. We have to cling to the red herrings who we assume killed her. 
but it kind of makes for a stronger story at the cost of a good villain, I guess you could say. Um, mm-hmm. The argument could be made that there are no perpetrators here, just humans being shitty to other humans. So yeah. I give four to five. Yes. I give four to five. Shit. Yeah, I think that's that's true. You know, um, shitty and just shitty humans being pretty nasty to each other. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I do. I got a, I got a soft spot for Maria Gibson, man. I got to be honest with you. Um, I and you know what? Like the red blooded male in me is. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know. Like what? What is it? You know when. I haven't been married. You picturing like uh, Penelope Cruz or like Sam Hayek or something like that? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that a, a woman who had great beauty in her younger days is still going to be beautiful as the man or her partner grows with her, right? I mean, you yes, would hope. Exactly. You would, you would hope. Like, what's her name? Um, oh, it doesn't matter. Bad examples. But what I'm trying to say is, like, as a red-blooded male, if A, B, C, or D older woman and I am an older man, is, is wanting my love and my affection. And, I mean, you, you get everything in here except for the description of her flaunting her naked breasts at him, right? Like, I yeah. mean, she is throwing herself at her husband desperate for passion. And, I mean, perhaps that can be that can be really off-putting, right? I mean, you're too clingy. I mean, she's very fucking clingy, let's be honest. But I'm reading this and thinking, God, like, you know, just, she's your wife, man. Like, I don't know, she's clearly still sexually attracted to you and i don't know a lot of men i really don't know a lot of men who um are big enough (laughs) to see beyond that if you see what i'm trying to say yeah i think like gibson is portrayed as i I think he's portrayed believably i i think that you know that he's probably a good man in in, in most cases but he's a bit of a douchebag in this in this in this in this particular you know um uh, um situation um i don't think I think his playboy nature uh, prevents him from trying to keep keep that connection forged, and he and he just lets it kind of rust away when you know something else comes along. So yeah, and I'm mean, I'm I'm being quite flippant here, you know, tongue in tongue in cheek, but I do feel yeah. like he doesn't give his wife very much respect. Like there there's a way. I mean, she's the one that comes across being crazy, whereas his dickishness is just kind of like well. You know, I got a crazy wife, man. Like, I'm not into her anymore. And she's just, you know, really obsessive. Well, at least he's honest, I suppose. I guess so. I way. guess so, yeah. But but she's the one who comes across as, you know, on the page being a little bit crazy. But I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I mean, like, you know, I'm kind of contradicting myself now because I said earlier this is quite believable. And I, I do feel like there's a believable story in here with these characters. And now I'm saying he's a bit of a dick. And I don't know many red-blooded, red-blooded males who uh, would not bow to their wives' sexual and romantic love. Do you know? Like, I, I don't know. I'm not yeah, saying that they wouldn't have women on the side, but at least he could still love her as well. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah I mean, uh, like, Tony Soprano did sleep with his wife, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, he did. He did. He did have children with them, and that's where she, and sacred. She's, she's sacred because she's the mother of their children. Yeah, and, like, so. if we're to read him as, like, this philanderer and maybe that's not the right word to use but as a, a sexual appetite for other women then he should still have some for his own wife don't you think i don't know uh, i definitely agree but but you know uh, what maybe hey man I, I maybe i'm really naive in this like you know i haven't been married long enough maybe i'm not an oil king or a gold king i don't know <laughs> yeah maybe give maybe me the power and perhaps i'll corrupt myself <laughs> there you go absolute power corrupts absolutely george orwell Right. So, what did you give for the perpetrators then? I gave four out of five. And what about the environs? Uh, I thought the description of Thord Bridge was vivid. The old stone bridge over there, mirror covered with reeds. The grass by the bridge where the body was found. The woods around the area and his connection to the Gibson Manse. 
uh, all well realized by you know ACD, and so that we can see it in our mind's eye. It's place where the crime is committed and the place of its resolution. Um, I also like the fact that the local sergeant has his cottage has his cottage work as his own residence and his sheriff's office. It adds kind of like this like little you know bucolic small flavor to the proceedings, and it contrasts well with the aura of malice and urgency that permeates the story. Um, I, I, I kind of really love, love I, that's how I kind of saw it. I give the environments four out of five. Okay, and, <laughs> and you went four for secondary, did you? For the supporting cast? Sorry, supporting cast, secondary cast. Yeah. Uh, four point five out of five, actually. Okay. Um, I wanted to comment. So Gibson Bates and Miss Dunbar, you know, they're all great red herrings. Gibson strong. Um, I liked him, but I didn't want him to be the perpetrator, despite the fact that it would be too predictable and tropey if he was. Did you like him? Um, I, I, I liked his character. I didn't like him as a person, but I liked right. the construction of his character. Okay. I guess I should clarify that. Okay. Um, we've had a lot of rich rural malcontents in these in this series, beating their wives, killing their nieces, yep. or assaulting anyone that gets in their way. Extorting their Gibson, finance yeah, and their inheritance. Ex yeah. Exactly. I found, he, I found Gibson was kind of a step above that. Um, it's also interesting, though, I want to point out, though, is that he's not a British man. He's an American. And this is maybe this is Arthur Conan Doyle refusing to show an American in, the, in this particular light. However, he has had like American gangsters over and whatnot with their obsessions with the wives of, of some poor schmuck that married her. And then we didn't realize, oh, my husband has a American gangster in her past. Yeah. Sorry, my, my wife has an American gangster in her past. That's not going to cause any problems. Uh, <laughs> or, or Australian, I guess you could give or take. Um yeah, so I gave I gave full marks for the uh, I was going to give full marks uh, in this case, but I went to four point five. Um, I guess because I, I go for Miss Dunbar, I we talk about how um, gives his clear infatuation with her nobility and integrity as evident in the letter to Holmes and expressed in the interview. One can see what Gibson sees in her that she doesn't see in his wife. Um, Sadly, this does, this does contrast her with Mrs. Gibson and reduces her to the passionate, vengeful, Latin woman stereotype. Yeah. So that's kind of what I kind of, you know, didn't like about it. Um, Watson doesn't objectify her, and Holmes is fighting for her, begging almost uh, for her to tell her story if she was another kind of violent hunter. Uh, we mentioned that earlier. Um, I found the interview segment with Holmes is her only in-person moment in the story, but she shines as a strong supporting character despite that. So, uh, because for that one thing about you know what, what they did with the Gibson, Gibson a little bit, uh, I think four point five out of five is pretty fair, given that all the other high marks that I've you know given the other categories for for this book, uh, this story. Okay, well, buddy, that brings you to a twenty-two out of twenty-five. That's one of your highest stories of the entire series. Um, I really liked it. Copper Beaches was higher for youth, uh, 23.5. Uh, yeah. Of course, where this is going to sit, where this is going to sit in your final ranking, let's let's wait and see next next time we, we get together. Okay. I think the creepy man will blow them all away. I'm just going to put that I'm going to put, I'm going to put that out there. Well, who knows, eh? Who knows? But um, we got musical selection now before we move on, and uh, it's down to you to choose door number one or door number two. If I open door number two, is it Goldfinger? <laughs> no, it's not Goldfinger. Um, Witchy oh. Woman? No, not. You've selected a great one. I'm I'm actually really pleased with your choice. It's one of my favorite singers, one of my most beautiful voices in country music. It is Patsy Cline singing She's Got You. And I thought this was a perfect song if you listen to the heartache of the lyrics, the heartache of, of the voice and the tone for Maria Gibson. I know you didn't favor her as much as I did, but maybe after this song you will.
I've got your picture that you gave to me, and it's signed with love, just like it used to be. The only thing different, the only thing new. I've got your picture. She's got you. I've got the records that we used to share, and they still sound the same as when you. Got you. I've got your memory, or has it got me? I really don't know, but I know it won't let me be. I've got your class ring that proved you care. And it still looks the same as when you gave it, dear. The only thing different, the only thing new. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the Patsy Cline singing, but I've got to reinforce my observations of this character. I do feel bad for Maria Gibson in this story, and I can't help but wonder if. Maybe like you were saying about the way the the victim is the perpetrator. Maybe the the the, the tragedy of the suicide. Maybe it's um, and okay, fine. Call it if you want the stereotype. Call it the um, the the Latin fire. Call it the um, obsessive behavior. Whatever. I think she's a really interesting, far more interesting foreign female character than we've had, and I would like to have seen her a little bit more. Uh, I, I agree. She was kind of like part of the of the murder mystery of the whodunit aspect, right? So she wasn't really a character per se. She was kind of almost like a uh, a cipher for all the other characters in the story and how they react and whatnot. Now, she does have agency in the story. Now, what I find, I guess, she's a little too indictive, I think, for me to truly I can embrace her and, and give me one, give 100% sympathy to her because she knew that by killing her, by framing her, by framing... You know this woman that takes care of her her children yeah. and who has who's done nothing to her whatsoever. I, I guess beyond you know being there, you know that that she would basically would would have sent that woman to the gallows and also and th- would have greatly affected the relationship with her children, right? Which is not a good parental thing to do. But no, but that I mean that adds depth to her character and her decision making to me. And I, I really it I does. really think you know anyway. it does. Yeah, it's a dark it's a dark decision to make, but. Yeah, it's definitely, it definitely gives character, and it definitely sticks out with you, for sure. Mm. Anyway, it stuck with me. But look, that's it. We got to get rolling. That is Thor Bridge back up to Ragnarok or wherever it lives. And here we go. On to the Creeping Man, the adventure thereof. Uh, I got some info here that you might find of interest. Yeah, let's, uh, jump, let's jump into that. I'm curious to see what info you have on this story, to be honest with you. Um, because I March have some ni- questions. I have lots of questions. <laughs> March 1923 in the Strand and in Hearst International. Uh, though it's pretty exaggerated, the plot details and this whole fountain of youth intrigue, which you're going to share, 
it wasn't too far from medical headlines of the time in Victorian England, believe it or not. This, I mean, you know, there was a time when this was really true science. And um, I mean, if you, I suppose, depending on how far you want to stretch what the professor does here, people still do stuff like this, right? Like if, what's a supplement? What's a, a vitamin? You know, weight loss medication, you know, all sorts of stuff. There's precedent for this type of behavior in the story. And maybe it's not that much stranger than the big beefy guy you see at the gym. So we'll get there. But the average Goodreads reviews, BFG, is a 3.4 for this story. I've got a two-star review from Jason. This one, I do not think, measures well scientifically, but whatevs. I got Helen with three stars. It was interesting at first. Then the revelation let me down. A fun read, but not better. Um... But better not think about it too much because it's rubbish the more you think about it. <laughs> Colin, four stars. The Adventure of the Creepy Man is definitely one of wow. the more offbeat and fantastical stories of the Holmes canon. With a very strange climax and more questions than you can shake a stick at, this story is something a bit different than the other cases in Watson's lockbox. And... Uh, sounds, like review... was kind of, sounds like he was kind of <clears throat> probably bored with the formula a little bit and this kind of probably perk his interests more yeah and i can see that i appreciate that you know we got to attract all kinds of different readers here don't you Indeed. manic manic mina <clears throat> one star starts turning into some jekyll and hyde story and it's not a very good one so <laughs> there you go that's a that's that's a review we've got a two a three a four and a one star review there on the average for the creepy man but i'm dying i know our listeners are dying tell me what it's all about bfg well, it's fitting that the adventure of the creepy man begins with a disclaimer from Watson about the strange nature of the case. <laughs> At first, one is under the impression that we're about to have another big scandal involving London Aristos, and due to certain non-disclosure agreements, H&W have to play it like the Warren Commission and keep their lips sealed <laughs> until they no longer have to. Bereft I am, then, forlorn, one could say, when I realize that all the suggestiveness from hype man Watson amounts to, nope, you could not have guessed, a monkey man. Cue the traveling Wilburys. <laughs> We learn from Watson's oiling up that this is one of the last cases he and Sherlock Holmes have ever done before his retirement. And given the events that transpire, uh, uh, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. not surprising. <laughs> uh, Watson is approaching his twilight years of taking care of his practice when he gets a telegram from SH. A loyal terrier, our young our man Watson heads to Baker Street where he finds Holmes about to be visited by a Mr. Trevor Bennett. Bennett shows up beleaguered by confusion and frustration. He spins his predicament before the great detective. He is the aide of the esteemed Professor Presbury, not to mention the prof's future son-in-law, to his only daughter, Edith. Fair enough. Even the added fact that the sexagenarian prof is engaged to the much, much younger Alice Morphy, a daughter of his colleague. Nope, not a, type, not a typo. It's actually Morphy, not mm-hmm. Murphy. Not exactly ringing the scandal gong either in the 20th century, uh, early 20th s- century. Uh, we come to the facts. Professor Presbury disappeared for two weeks after the engagement. He returns... Looking like a man who has early 20th century version of jet lag. He makes no comment on why he left or where he went to. Just goes about his business until the creeping starts. By that I mean actual creeping. Bennett tells the dynamic duo that he was was aware of the professor on his hands and knees crawling along the corridor late at night. Bennett, of course, asks the prof what he might be doing such a thing. And the prof gives him rancor for it. To add to the peculiarity, his favorite well-tempered wolfhound is attacking him, and through letters received from the professor's friend Bennett, has learned that it was Prague the professor made an odd pilgrimage to recently. 
Then shortly after, Bennett is working in the Prof's office and perhaps being a little nosy, picked up an ornate wooden box the professor has obviously brought back from Prague, to which the Prof notices and goes, ape shit. Intended. Pardon the pun. Yes, intended. Oh, sorry. Uh, Bennett's, Bennett's tirade is pre- briefly interrupted, however, by his fiancée, Edith, showing up and adding to the insanity with her story about seeing her, br- seeing her father's head briefly in her bedroom window. Two floors above the ground. Oh, what the F is going on, good sir? I will tell you what's going on, dear listener. Through a series of clues involving envelopes being sent to the professor, from creeping down corridors, climbing the outside wall of respectable estates, and other odd things, we are delivered a yarn that ultimately comes down to the weirdest Viagra commercial ever. <laughs> As a reader myself, outside of being a reviewer, I feel it's not necessary to go into the details that ACD throws and with typical formula to justify this ridiculous tale. It simply comes down to a 61-year-old man trying to get it up in preparation for his future matrimonial bliss with a young lady. Okay, trying to turn back the clock with a verifiable, at least in the story world, dram from the fountain of youth. You see, Holmes puts all the pieces together because really, don't bother. No virgin reader would have predicted the outcome of this case. (laughs) And determines that the professor, upon hearing about some criminal treatment created by a man named Lowenstein in Bohemia, remember when that place was where scandals came from? I like that better. A treatment derived from the serum, whatever that might refer to, of a breed of monkey known as langurs. And here, in the weirdest of stories, Doc Watson is amazingly at the top of his game, remembering with clarity Lowenstein of Prague, the inventor of a serum that provides strength and vigor to its user. Only with one side effect, you kind of turn into a monkey. But you'll make it into the, in the sack of younger ladies, just don't start <laughs> picking bugs from her hair. That's a turnoff. <laughs> eh, that's all I got, folks. Read it yourself. You'll be intrigued, as I'll, as I'll get out. But, will, but you will in no way expect it to resolve the way that it did. The Nutty Professor, indeed. I went as back to Sherlock Holmes' tale, not the prequel to Planet of the Apes. <laughs> That's a good one. Well done. Um, I do agree with the reviewer, though, who, who does find this a little bit spunky, a little bit fun, because it's, it is offbeat. And yeah. it, you know, I found it neat reading it. I was, I was engaged, and I did kind of... I mean, I didn't predict, no, of course I didn't predict everything, but I did have an idea that this guy with the younger girl was trying to turn back the time. By the way, you want a real laugh, check out the Granada production of this one. Okay, definitely. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty good. Like, it's 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 pretty engaging. Um, is it, is it, uh, now, I, I know this was like from the case book and stuff, but in chronology-wise in the series, is it younger Brett or is it older Brett? Yeah, it's it's weird the way they structured those because the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, if I'm not mistaken, was filmed before the collection known as the um maybe that was the last one. Anyway, it's early in the last in the latter seasons. Does that make sense to you? It's like Okay. So kind of before his like very visually obvious decline. Well, yeah, I mean, when he was on lithium it... and the, the the bloated face and and his you know his yeah. bipolarism and stuff like that. Yeah, he he looks okay in it, but he's he's in the later stages of his Holmes plane. Yeah, just out of curiosity, and um, what what do you prefer, Edward Har- Hardwick or David Burke as Watson? I like Edward Hardwick myself. Yeah, he's a great actor, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Elizabeth, uh, the one with uh-huh. Kate Blanchett. Yep. He plays uh, uh, the Earl of Arundel in that in that film, and he's actually oh, has a nice, very significant role. It's on Netflix now, actually. Um, well, on, on, on Canadian Netflix, anyways, uh, Elizabeth. So it's a good one to catch up on because a, it's a great movie, and Edward Hardwick has a great supporting role in the movie. Hmm, didn't know that, but I will. It is a good movie. I do remember liking it. I, I do. I do like both Watsons. I just like to say that you know Burke, Burke was good. good. Too. 
He um, was a really good, young, vigorous Watson, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, um, uh, Hardwick is a good, older, but, you know, um, steely, I, I guess, Watson. He's a little more emotional, though. I think he's a little, he's a little better, better. Uh, he's more of a companion and an emotional friend than I think Burke is. Burke is kind of like the more, uh, not a like raconteur, a, like a, but like a more of an adventurer. Like yeah. a frat brother kind of thing, like an adventurer. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. It's, it's different ways of doing it. It's like a bond, right? It's different mm. perspectives. That's right. So, okay, our, our pipes are lit. Um, let's let's talk about this one. I've just got a few notes, okay, that I've pulled from my reading. And I don't know that you want, or I don't know if you want to go through and, and make any uh, discussions of quotations or descriptions or anything. But uh, I think what your plot summary laid out was was really quite true. Like, we don't need to go through all of the little bits that lead up to the revelation of this guy having crazy serum from Lowenstein. No, it's just, I just don't think it's worth it. I mean, that's my personal opinion, but yeah. I, I just think this was a silly story. And it's a kind of a one-off thing. I think it was, I thought it was fun, I guess, in retrospect, but I was annoyed when I was reading it. I was, I was, I was actually kind of in a kind of sense of anxiety about like, what the heck is up with this guy? Like, is this some kind of weird thing? Like, I'm really curious. I was really curious to see what kind of, cultural reference that he would pull and to explain the situation with him but no he goes right into like um you know dr jekyll territory well yeah he does that's exactly yeah. what he does um well seeing as we're going to start by talking about our principles let me read you this little point here uh from the text <clears throat> this is watson uh speaking about holmes he liked to think aloud in my presence his remarks could hardly be said to be made to me many of them would have been as appropriately addressed to his bedstead but nonetheless having formed the habit it had become in some way helpful that i should register and interject if i irritated him by a certain methodical slowness in my mentality that irritation served only to make his own flame-like intuitions and impressions flash up the more vividly and swiftly such was my humble role in our alliance now, the note here says that Watson's being too modest. In The Blanche Soldier, generally given the date of 1903 in January, Holmes remarks, speaking of my old friend and biographer, Watson has some remarkable characteristics of his own, to which, in his honesty, he has given small attention amid his exaggerated estimates of my own performances. Yet, Dorothy Sayers sees more than meets the eye in Watson's assessment of his humble role, and she wonders whether his soliloquy might be a subtle expression here of bitterness at Holmes's treatment of him throughout the years. In Dr. Watson Widower, she observes that Watson seems hurt at being considered a mere convenience like the fiddle and the old pipe to be picked up or cast aside as Holmes's fancy took him. His faithful heart was really wounded. For further evidence, she points to the Mazarin Stone, thought to have occurred in 1903, the same year as The Creeping Man, in which Watson distances himself from his old friend, plunging himself into his practice and bearing, quote, every sign of the busy medical man, end quote. When the call comes, Sayers writes, he answers it, but not quite with the old alacrity. Was it for so trivial a question as this that I had been summoned for my work? He asks himself with a touch of bitterness. Never hmm. before had he resented an intrusion on his work. Hmm, interesting point. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, and so mm-hmm. ladle done to a helping of what you were saying about the two of them reaching their retirement age. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny. This was like one of their last cases. I'll point that out. But uh. <laughs> yes, um, I will give you my pipes because I, I mean, in the spirit of brevity, I don't want to. Um, I don't. I don't want to spend too long on too many things, but I'm just going to give you my pipes, and I'm. I'm going to let you talk this one out if it's if it's the same to you. 
I'll just read you one other point about uh, insanity and the moon, which I found quite interesting as I was reading. Well, that's what I was thinking when you mentioned the moon cycles, right? I was thinking, what is this? Is he going into werewolf territory here now, yeah. or maybe, or or at least maybe lycanthropy? Mm. That's what I'm, I thought he would he would be he would be suggesting. I, I, I was like, wrong. I like the two of them here in the story. They were okay. Three point five. We were chasing a little bit, though, weren't we? In this story, like we weren't. Um, this wasn't so much a fair play. We were really chasing to see what it was all going to be about. So. You know, that those are okay stories, uh, but we don't often get as much time with Holmes and Watson as we would like. No, not like and the it, last it's, one. It's really example. funny, you know, because like right now, concurrently, I'm teaching the adventures of Sherlock Holmes with my yeah. my class at school. And we can talk more about that in our finale, perhaps, because we'll still I'll still be teaching it. But it is remarkable to me, Josh, just the difference in quality of the story writing. It's it really is night and day. Now these are not bad stories. You know, I mean, we just gave one a really high mark, but the, it's kind of like the texturing I find, like the, the filler of these early stories, the backstories are much better thought out. You know, they're, yes. they're, they're not just kind of token. They, they really feel tight. Um, anyway, sorry, uh, I was going to say something there. I, I went off track, but yeah, so I like these two in it, but it's, they're just not comparable as a partnership here, you get the nice moments at the beginning, but then there's no nice moments in between. The earlier stories seem to have Watson sitting back and looking at Holmes more and talking to us about him and wondering where he fits in. You get more of the sort of the character yeah. at work, you know, observation. And we're meant to believe that Watson never loses his enthusiasm for Holmes and his methods. But these stories don't give us as much Watson meditation as the earlier ones do. No. I feel I feel like as a narrative voice, we need that if we're do, if we're going to continue to buy into the the um, the relationship. You know. Yeah, exactly. They were adequate in this story. Mm -hmm. I never really found they had a strong presence uh, because the weirdness of the mystery seemed to take away from them. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give a point to the idea of Watson and Holmes, though they seem less of each other, teaming up once again before Holmes' retirement. Uh, the little telegram referenced in the pilot episode of Sherlock, if you recall, like, um, if, if can if if convenient, come at once, um, oh, or, yeah, yeah. or or if inconvenient, um, can't come anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was I, I, so I actually because I, mean, I remember I remember that and from the show, and then when I finally read the story, it was like, oh, okay, so that was a nod to that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, that little telegram reference in the, in, uh, was fun, and uh, they were, it was, you know, and I felt like they were kind of like hilariously straight faced through the whole Bennett interview, and the whole like, and they're very humorous, humorously stoic through the whole all the further revelations in the story. It might have been like a Monty Python skit in many ways, you know, like yeah. you know, like like just John Cleese and uh, you know Michael Palin, and you know just being just be just being totally straight to this entire procedure where there's like monkey men and stuff like that. <laughs> it's very Monty Python. Yeah, I, I do feel though that being distanced by almost a century from the science of the story and and the context of you know the, the time yeah. when when these sorts of you know discoveries are being made and questions are being asked about where in the world can we find this and world travel is just starting to come into into itself in a way that you know brings stories i mean in the past it was the empire that brought stories to the Victorian reader. And now it's it's more like the Victorian reader, or sorry, the Edwardian or the, uh, you know, the, the 20th century reader can get out and discover stories for themselves a little bit more easily. And I feel like some of the mystique of, of you know, what's out there for a guy like a professor, do you know, uh, what, what, yeah. what drugs, what kind of things are out there? It's, it's a little bit more, um, more acute, I think. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I found that interesting, but <clears throat> I went 3.5 for the principles. Uh, Me too. Four, 
I went four for the investigation because I did think it was a, a, a fun story to read, even though it was ridiculous. I did kind of uh, find it I was, fun. I was not generous on it at all, but that's fair. I, I know, I know. But like I said at the outset <laughs> of this story, I kind of agreed with that guy who felt like this is something a little different. So what did you do? Where'd you go? I went 2.5 with the investigation, actually. Um, let's say about the story, the better. I, but I can't deny that ACD hooked me from the get-go and then, and then punked me so bad at the end. Um, <laughs> it was unpredictable, but that's all it has really going for, in my opinion. I'm used to pat endings and off-screen comeuppances, but that jump into the island of Dr. Moreau territory was too much of a leap of faith for me. Um, I mean, it's nice that Conan Doyle is hand-waving to Robert Louis Stevenson, his fellow Scott, but... Uh, I thought that was H.G. Wells. Or wouldn't Jekyll and Hyde and, and oh sorry Mar no Doctor Moreau I thought was H G Wells is it I thought that was Ribbley Stevenson I, I could be wrong though I know Dark Jekyll was was Mister yeah Jekyll's Hyde. Stevenson oh you you got me you got me doubting it now I'm gonna find out keep t keep talking um the the case was intriguing but despite its out of the box ending I, you know I kind of found it formulaic and lazy I guess I don't know I gave it two point five but I feel your your thoughts about it in in, in retrospect but I, I'm I'm just gonna stay with two point five. Okay, very good. Um, let's see here. I'm just checking it out. Oh, shit. Of course, right? Fucking internet, man. Like, first thing you see is, like, 400 different films. Can't find the goddamn book. Like, it's like, oh, yeah. it's like, it's like what is it? The Simulacrum or whatever? Where are we here? H.G. Uh, Wells. Yeah, he wrote it. He did? Yeah. Okay. I, I did not know he wrote that story. That's very interesting. I, yeah. I correct myself, and that's perfectly fine. But... He did kind of did a hand wave with Dr. Jekyll in this particular story. So I think my statement is still fit. So I'll, I'll yeah. stay with that. So um, let me read this point to you then before I give you the rest of my, my pipes. Uh, the insa insanity of the moon. Uh, it's a very short point. It's just to let you know that the word lunatic comes from the Roman belief that the moon affected mysterious changes in certain people, driving them to the point of madness when it was full. Mm -hmm. So there you go. And if the you wanted more information cow. on the monkey, I'm quite happy to give it to you. Oh, the Langer? Yeah, on the, on the serum that was used. This is the kind of context I was saying is quite interesting that I think when we read it 100 years later, it's ridiculous. But there's some, there is some basis in what's going on here. Okay. Do you want to hear any of it? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> first of all, the... Da, 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 da. No, you know what? I'll skip over the monkey bit. It's just a description of the monkey. Let me talk to you. Uh, my last note about Lowenstein then. In investigating Lowenstein's effort, Alv Alvin E. Rodin and Jack Key in their medical casebook of Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle comment on the work of French physiologist Brown Sicard, who, uh, who somewhat damaged his distinguished reputation by attempting to invent the elixir of eternal youth. In June of 1889, already recognized for having discovered the importance of the spinal cord, Brown Sicard announced, to much sensation in the Parisian and London journals, that he had injected himself with the testicular secretions of guinea pigs and dogs and felt rejuvenated as a result. Among other findings, he reported that he was now able to engage in sexual relations with his new younger wife, whereas previously he had found his capabilities limited. Brown Sicard did not, however, end up prolonging his life in any meaningful way, and Rodin and Key note that injections of water alone have achieved similar results. Even in the decade when The Creeping Man was published, they write, medical fas uh, fadism and quackery included transplanted monkey glands as well as extracts for rejuvenation. Richard Brown expands upon Brown-Sicard's results, explaining that his method became known as 
organotherapy and was recommended in the United States as a treatment for epilepsy, cancer, cholera, tuberculosis, leprosy, and other infirmities. Wow, big umbrella. In the 1890s, testicular extract sold in New York for $2.50 per 25 injections, with a special syringe costing another $2.50. These were sent by mail to any distance in the USA, complete with directions, Brown reports. Whether or not they were sent in wooden boxes is not stated, but they would not... But they would need some form of protection to send glass vials and syringes by mail in the 1890s, and would seemed most likely. So, yeah, we're laughing at it, but there's precedent for this stuff. And Conan yeah. Doyle's a doctor, after all. You know, he probably knew the work of Sicard and, and was quite interested in how a guy who did such great things with the spinal cord could, could offer quack sort of... Uh, ideas about rejuvenation, right? Yeah, that kind of like, okay, the spinal cord revelation is great. And then he overreached incredibly. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I f- I'm going to finish this off. I went 3.5 for the perpetrator because I found him an interesting guy. And he wasn't really a perpetrator, but uh, four for environs because I loved the setting. This was this was like uh, this was like a universal monster story, and I like those films. I like those <laughs> right, films, right. and I went for it. And this it's got a great supporting cast. At least it's full. You got Trevor Bennett, Professor Presbury, obviously Alice Morphy, as you've already said, Mercer, the general utility man that Holmes uses, which is cool. Gives us a look at the underworld that Holmes is still dealing with. We've got. Yeah. Uh, Dorak, who's the pharmacological contact in London, and of course Lowenstein himself, who we only really reveal at the end. But there's a good working supporting cast here. I think it deserves a four from me. So I went 19 wow. out of 25 overall. Wow. So perpetrators, <laughs> the professor, the guy who wants to be all youthful for his lady and has the worst late life crisis imaginable. <laughs> Too bad it didn't have convertibles then or Cialis. I gave it to you. Yeah, okay. Um, and now that I know that it's monkey spunk, then that's even... <laughs> uh, I don't know. I wasn't really impressed with them. I didn't get that. I, I didn't feel like Bella Lugosi or Lon Chaney was around there or anything like that. Right. I don't know. I, I, I gave Environs one. I thought it was kind of basic. <laughs> one? Yeah. And supporting cast. One. Yeah. Okay. All right, man. Edith, I really didn't like this story. Can you tell? Um, <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Edith, Edith and Bennett are fun in their frustration and being put out, but they're really just narrators slash plot devices to justify the story. So I gave supporting cast. Given your thoughts on the supporting cast, I'm thinking about, you know, about Mercer and stuff like that. I'll raise it to a three. Okay. What did you give to uh, the, the, the perpetrator? Two. <laughs> Jeez, oh, how can you give the environment a one? Like, you, uh, gave, you gave the environment of the Marazan Stone, uh, like, a higher score than that. Oh, anyway. did I? Yeah, anyway, let's see, let's see. Four and two is six, and two is 8.5 and three. So you're at a 12. Okay, you're 12. That's a fail for you. This story is a, is a fail. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm not going to fight that. I'm, I, I agree with you okay. 100%. Well, in, well, look, then in that case, let's not waste any more time on it. We still got four to go. Pick <laughs> door number one or door number two. Maybe you'll enjoy the song more. <laughs> if it's Traveling Wilburys, maybe. Uh, one. Door number one, okay, you have picked a great one. It's a classic. Uh, the Searchers, you may not remember them, but we weren't alive when they were popular from 1963. This is called Love Potion Number 9. Ooh. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap too. She's got a pad down a pretty floating vine. Selling little bottles of Love Potion Number
So there he is, Professor Presbury, drinking his love potion number nine all the way good from choice. Prague. <laughs> I have heard that song before. Yeah, that's a good tune. That's yeah, a good are, tune. Are they a British band, The Searchers? Uh, dude, I don't know. Pass. I'll say I'll say yes, but I don't know. They, they seem like one of the many type of like Beatle-esque kind of guys that came out during that time. Uh, you could be right, particularly if what you say is true. Uh, uh, 75% of, of Two-thirds of what, of what you true. offer, yeah. yeah Two-thirds <laughs> of what I offer, yeah, absolutely. Oh. All right. Well, here we go on to another ridiculous story, The Adventure of the Lion's Mane. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners and myself a little bit about its publication and how it entered the world? Well, sir. Um, <laughs> um, a hole in the ground. A well is a hole in the ground. You got any more? A hole in the ground, indeed. Uh, yeah, just a second here. I really don't like uh, certain um, formats. All right, all right, all right. Have you have your fun? Um, the Adventure of the Lion's Mane, the publication history, was first published in Liberty Magazine, November twenty seventh, nineteen twenty six, in the U.S. So I guess the Yanks got ahead of the curve there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lion's Mane uh, is our Cyanea capillata. What that is or who that is, we're going to find out. I'm sure you're um, – but before we uh, get your dissertation on the lion's mane, um, I had this one. Goodreads uh, has a couple here. I had this one figured out by page two or three. Still, it was a fun read. What? How the fuck figured this out in page two? <laughs> Apparently. Ha! Huh, okay. I knew it all along. Another person said, extremely disappointing and predictable. One expects a little more when Sherlock himself is transcribing, but I guess it is better that Watson does his work on his own. Rao Umar. And then he underlines his pen with a gif of Jim, played by John Krasinski on the U.S. office, with a bemused but bored expression. Nice. I've got a couple of gifs from Rao as well in my report. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Is that it? Good old, good old Rao. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So you can uh, dive into what uh, the lion mane is about. What is this lion's mane we speak of? All right. Well, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water. No, wait. Just when you thought it was safe to hunt lions. No, wait. Just when you thought it was safe to expand your knowledge of the Murdoch mysteries. No. Ah, oh, shit. Oh, I've got it. Just when you thought it was safe to retire in Sussex and befriend a bunch of pool-hopping professor types who know nothing about the gelatinous dangers of the ocean but are all crushing hard on the village beauty. That's it. So encapsulates the adventure of the Lion's Mane, one of the strangest inclusions in the canon, even from an ACD money-making point of view. Much like the Blanche Soldier, this tale offers a rarity in narrative voice, 
told to us by the quasi-retired detective himself, but I'd be lying if I said something wasn't lost in the broadcast. Holmes has settled into his new Sussex home, just him, his bees, and the seaside. He's made friends with the locals, particularly the teachers of the nearby prep school, the Gables, and they often go swimming together. Now, you know, this is not an image that's easy to come to mind for me. Well, anyway, one morning, he and a head teacher, Harold Stackhurst, are walking along the beach when Fitzroy McPherson, the science teacher, staggers their way in agony and collapses in front of them in paroxysms of breath and bent muscle. He dies on the spot, but not before issuing the key words, Lion's Mane. <laughs> now, you may be forgiven for thinking about Citizen Kane here, but I assure you, Rosebud, this is not. Still... <laughs> There is a mystery, because McPherson is loosely dressed and has a series of lash marks across his back, indicative of some torturous experience. Yes, maybe he's a medieval Catholic. Uh, maybe. Yes, he had a weak heart and all that, but a cardiac episode would hardly account for the marks, would it? Plus, there's that creepy lion's mane thing. Oh, and a short letter from someone called Maudie promising to be there. Huh, a clandestine meetup then. Had this tragedy begun as a little beachfront S&M before going terribly wrong? Huh. Well... Struck by the shock of this, Holmes and Stackhurst hardly have time to collect their thoughts before they're joined by Ian Murdoch, the Gables' taciturn math teacher, good at his job, but not so much at making his boss happy. Disliked by most of his postcode, Murdoch appears to be a true grump and is the first sloppy red herring to enter this plot. By his own admission, he and McPherson had had some bad blood in the past. I guess that can happen when one of you throws the other one's Jack Russell Terrier through a plate glass window. Of late, however, they had been amiable enough. And it's incredible what rifling through a dead man's desk will uncover, and Holmes isn't above leading the charge. Pretty soon, it's revealed that McPherson had a lover, Maud Bellamy, the most beautiful female specimen on the planet. Or so the locals would have you believe. The platitudes are as cheesy as they are plentiful, believe me. But even Holmes is struck by her beauty. A noteworthy thing needs to be said. Uninterested in sex as a virile man, the now creeping over the hill Holmes would be even less inclined to care. And yet, quote, I could not look upon her perfect, clear-cut face with all the soft freshness of the downlands in her delicate colouring without realising that no young man would cross her path unscathed. Yeah, she is a hottie. And it turns out that she and McPherson had more than just a fling. Secretly, they were engaged to be married, but her domineering father and brother just simply wouldn't have it. These two aggressors are the next sloppy red herrings to enter the plot, potential suspects of McPherson's death given their control over Maud. Mr. Bellamy, by the way, is referred to as Old Tom, and he owns all the boats and bathing huts in the nearby town of Fulworth. Think somewhere between Captain Highliner and Tony Soprano, and I think you're getting warm. <laughs> Murdoch, in the meanwhile, has been fired by Stackhurst from the school for a number of lame reasons, but mostly, we presume, so that Conan Doyle can artificially build his perpetrator status, because he's dealing with a shocking lack of narrative fuel here. The denouement arrives when local Sussex police inspector Bartle visits Holmes to see about arresting Murdoch. All suspicions are soon retracted when Murdoch himself, led by Stackhurst, bursts into Holmes's room and stumbles his way across the floor in similar jerks and convulsions to the recently deceased. After downing a carafe of brandy and shouting for some opioids, Murdoch reveals the same patterned mark across his back as were earlier noted on the body of McPherson. He then passes out. He was discovered down by the ocean, suspiciously close to McPherson's own last swimming hole. Holmes finally puts it all together and rushes to the beach to find the evidence he now knows exists. At the bathing pool, he sees a lion's mane jellyfish, and he executes his most sophisticated and exacting parlay. He squashes the nuisance with a fucking stone. Yeah, he and Stackhurst invoke their destructive eight-year-old selves, and they just squish the slimy bastard. And so <laughs> ends the adventure of the lion's mane. 
For all of its weaknesses, the one thing the story does succeed in creating is a believable impression of Holmes the pensioner. Disappointing as it may be for some, I completely buy the idea of him cozying up to the faculty of a prep school for brisk morning walks and pool skipping. And perhaps that's because the stories of late have themselves been slower and more lame. A classic case of art imitating life, I suppose. Well, this sequel to Cocoon, sorry, this episode of The Golden Girls, shit, sorry, I mean, this Sherlock Holmes story will rest alongside those other bottom dwellers that don't add much to character or canon. We read them for completist sake, but not for a heck of a lot of fun. The only readers to whom I would recommend this story are those with an interest in the niche genre of metasozoan literary crossover. For them, this must be a true classic, a jellyfish tickler. The day my favorite jellyfish almost killed, but not really ever came close to killing, Sherlock Holmes. It's like a lame version of Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of, isn't it? it is Cthulhu, kind of, yeah. Cthulhu coming from the from the pool from the <laughs> swimming pool. No, but he doesn't come. He doesn't come from the pool. He just stays there and waits for people to come fucking get stung by. Yeah, him. no one raises him from another dimension. He just floats there. <laughs> he just sits there. Yeah, transient. The old one. The old one. Who knew yeah. that Holmes actually defeated Cthulhu, and that was what Cthulhu looks like on Earth. He's just a fucking jellyfish. Anyway. All right, let's see if uh, we can wrap this one up in 15 minutes, huh? Uh, probably less than that. <laughs> okay, Lion's Mane, buddy. Um, you go for it. I, I've started off the last couple, so why don't you start off here with your pipes? Okay. Um, I actually liked Holmes a lot in this particular story. Um, he's on his own. I find it wonderful that he has made a small acquaintance with Stackhurst. It's proof that his relationship with Watson has made him capable of social relationships. And he's an older retired Holmes and his caper, but he's still professional and he's intrigued. And he's more than and capable for another whodunit. Now, it's not exactly a whodunit in the classic sense, obviously. Um, but um, I thought Holmes was pretty was, was, was solid in this, despite, you know, the lameness of the case. So I gave it a four. Okay. Well, we do certainly see differently here. I didn't like Holmes in this story. I thought that the whole thing came down to him running around on the beach and then finding a book where he remembered something. This was a total pensioner story. The whole fucking thing is, will the guy remember that he knows what a jellyfish sting looks like? And then when, <laughs> gran when Grandpa sits back down in his house, he's like, shit. I, I found that believable. I now, found that believable. Now I got uh, it. So, yeah, it's, it's believable. That's why, that's why I liked it. For, all right. In terms, okay. of, in terms of the principle of how the character is in the story, I, I kind of liked it. Okay, fair uh, enough. Um, I, thought it I, was, say, I thought it was lame. I, I thought that an old Sherlock Holmes would still have more about him, more savvy than this. But, eh. but let, you know, let, let's thresh it out, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I, I, I love our, uh, you know, the odd moment in this whole eight, 10 or 20 month series where we have disagreed with each other. I'm, uh, I'm quite happy to thresh it out. I'm going to have another hot take uh, for the investigation. Okay. Um, this is the best solo home story. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle built it around the perp being the jellyfish, but it works as a Jaws-like modern natural kind of horror story with people taking priority. We get good red herrings like the Bellamy's and Murdoch along the side of the tentacle, and the malevolency of the lion's mane gives a great horror element. I don't know. It was a simple story, but I, 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 I enjoyed it. I, I give it 3.5. Well, I gave it a three. I didn't give it a three point five, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, about, I'm about there with you. I don't think these red herrings are as good as, but you know, they're they're okay, I guess. I just I think they I think they worked well for the kind of the narrative that I kind of got from it. The idea, of like, kind of like a modern kind of like you know a, a community being affected by something terrible, like some kind of some some natural threat, and I think they work well in that way. So they're not you know they're not three dimensional kind of 
characters per se that get involved in this in, in, in terms of the red herrings. But, <sighs> you know, he, when you're building a story around a jellyfish, I mean, what else are you going to do? Because obviously that was his goal. He wanted to tell a story about a jellyfish. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that ambition that he wanted to kind of switch things around and have a different type of perp. Okay, well, I mean, by, by that admission, he the previous one, he just wanted to tell the story of a guy on monkey gland I, injections. I believe in jellyfish killing people. I don't believe in people turning into monkeys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, just He didn't I, turn into a monkey, man. He didn't transform. Like, he didn't transform. He just, he gained the, he gained the agility of, of a monkey. Uh, yeah, that to me is like comic book. That's like comic book science to me, like pseudoscience. Okay, like, fair, enough. fair enough. You know, this is a jellyfish in a, in, in a washed up like on, you know, on the Sussex shore. And it's, All right. and you know, it's, 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 it's wreaking havoc and people don't realize what it is. And you perceive, you know, all these terrible, this, this, this kind of terrible crime and you're wondering what the hell happened to, you know, to McPherson at the beginning. And then it has this kind of reveal, but just kind of shows how nature can also be a bit of a threat too. So I think that works well with Holmes and his scientific kind of acumen. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I'm 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 on really thin ice here. You know, I'm I'm not trying to espouse the greatness of the adventure of the creeping man. I'm I'm just saying that I did give you some scientific context that would suggest that it, the behavior wasn't that strange. So that's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I I think both those sto- this story and the story beforehand, I think they're really uh, they're very subjective uh, in terms of I think what you can glean from them. And that's cool. I mean, that 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 suggests that we're going to have an interesting ranking when we're all finished this, doesn't it? I mean, there are some that are anyway. undisputed greatness. Or some stories have that undisputed greatness, like Baskerville, you know. Um, but then there are others that are really much, you know. You got sixty fucking stories. What what's your personal taste, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I also I apologize. I gave the investigation a four, not a three point five. Oh, a four. Okay, right. Well, uh, how about those nasty jellyfish? Would you give them? The Murdochs and the Bellinators are set up as the antagonist, obviously, but the jellyfish is the real culprit. It works, but there's not really that much there to go. So I just gave that a three. Right. Well, I didn't. I gave it a two um, because I, I didn't like the Bellamies. I thought they were sloppy red herrings. Uh, and I actually felt it was a little distracting, the whole, you know, we're not going to let her. I found it a bit fucking boring, to be honest, like distracting and boring. Like, we're not going to let her marry Murdoch. Oh, God. Mur- and then Murdoch had the relationship with her before, but he had somehow, you know, got a more moral high ground over Fitz, uh, Fitzpatrick or Fitzroy shit. What is the fuck his name? I don't know what it is. Fitzroy McPherson. Yeah, Fitzroy McPherson, you know. I think there's way too many characters in this story for what amounts to just a jellyfish sting. Harold Stackhurst, Fitzroy McPherson, Ian Murdoch, Inspector Bartle. Like, Inspector Bartle, why is he even there? They should have watched that episode of Friends where, like, uh, Monica gets, like, uh, attacked by a jellyfish and everyone pees on it on her leg or something like that. <laughs> well, they, they didn't have access to it, huh? Yeah, I guess that's been embedded that medical science wasn't known yet. <clears throat> it wasn't known, yeah. Okay, yeah. so uh, in terms of environment, I kind of – I wanted to score higher here than I ultimately did. I scored it a 3.5. Um, I, I liked the Sussex coast. I thought it was nice, but the environment just wasn't rendered the way we got it in The Devil's Foot, for example. Mm, okay, like in Cornwall and stuff like that. That's yeah. right. So I went I went 3.5 because I liked the idea of being somewhere else, but then I stopped and I realized he's always somewhere else. He's never in fucking London. So, yeah. you know, I went 3.5. 
Yeah, so did I. I, I like Sussex, the White Cliffs, the bathing pool, the, the the Jaws-like feel to the proceedings, the feeling of terrible depth on this lovely resort area of Southeast England. It meshes well with the reveal of the gelatinous perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. I, I agree with you. I think it did. Um, well, tell me about your uh, secondary players. I just went through the cast of them there. I got 3.5 for that. Uh, it's a lively dramatist person, a red herrings that come across in their own way despite being plot devices in the end for the big reveal of the actual killer. I kind of found that Murdoch, he seemed like an interesting young man. I like that kind of this, this beauty he had with Stackhurst and everything and how upset he is and how he was hiding it. There's a kind of like this slight melancholy nuance to his character and it had me wondering if he was a killer or not. You know, like I would have, you know, like I would have wanted to see more about that if he was the killer. That would have been, that would have been, that would, that would have been interesting. Hmm. Um, if kind of somehow Doyle found a way of uh, stretching things out here and kind of creating more Im- believable, I guess, am- am- ambiguity to his red herrings. Um, you know, that it would pay off for a, a bigger finish, I, I, I guess you could say. But um, alas, it was just a jellyfish in the end. But for some reason, I, I, still, I still rate that higher over Monkey Man. Okay. Well, look, buddy, uh, here's an interesting note. Um, this is, yeah, I don't know what you'll make of this, but the, 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 the question is, did Murdoch plant the, jelly, the jellyfish? Ooh, and how would he have planted that? That would be a difficult... Uh... Um, uh, endeavor, in my opinion. Well, let's find out what they, what everybody thinks. <clears throat> so we're referring here to the text where we've got. I leave it. There is the book, Inspector. I leave it with you, and you cannot doubt that it contains a full explanation of the tragedy of poor McPherson, and incidentally exonerates me. Remarked Ian Murdoch with a wry smile, and then we read this. Of course, Murdoch, living up to Holmes' initial doubts about him, might well have planted the jellyfish in the tide pool with diabolical malice, afterthought, Joel Hedgepeth theorizes. His plan, you see, was to murder McPherson, then subject himself to the jellyfish's tawny membranes as a cover for his own crime. But Hedgepath then points out that no two jellyfish stings produce identical symptoms, and that the striking similarity between Murdoch's reaction and J.G. Wood's written account in the book that Holmes refers to, should have immediately raised his, the great detective's, suspicions. Beyond all doubt, Hedgepeth writes, the dark, brooding, ferocious, tempered young man, disappointed in love and capable of throwing innocent dogs through windows, has conceived a most ingenious crime and, to allay suspicion, has caressed his uh, his own monstrous pet. But his own injuries were not serious enough, and so he found ways to reproduce those experienced by Dr. Wood. Hedgepeth adds that the long hair of an Airedale terrier should have protected it from the potency of the jellyfish's sting, and that therefore Murdoch must have poisoned the dog and placed it at the scene of the crime to throw Holmes' further off his scent. That referring to the poisoned dog, or the dead dog, remember? Interesting. Well, is it? <laughs> I don't think it's a bit well, of a I, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that, that, yeah, like a dog's fur would protect it from the jellyfish sting. I just found that interesting. But what about, like, what about Holmes? And dogs. Like, I think at some point now we've had, we, we got another dog coming. We got a dog here. We got a dog yeah. in the previous couple, in the previous story that kind of lets us know and lets Holmes know. We've got dogs in the can. And I think we got to talk about dogs next time we come around to do our rankings and everything. And don't forget Toby and the sign of four. Yeah, but don't you find that Holmes's reaction here is a bit contradictory and a little inconsistent with some of his earlier cruel even treatments? Like very coldly in, in a scar- study in Scarlet. You remember he's like, he's quite clinically cold about his interest in in the dogs you know and and i mean but a, a variety of these later canonical dogs seem to have made an impact on him or on at least on the page you know he talks about them as just 
things to learn from dead bodies and you know he can learn from animals and stuff like that in in the early stories but now i mean yeah fine he's friends with toby and all the rest of it but here's uh, a yeah link. i never oh. found that he was cr- he was cruel to dogs at all i mean if anyone doesn't like dogs it's it's like watson because watson the ones who kills the dogs in the story <laughs> not, not killing them okay just the way he talks about them though yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I think in this particular case here, that it was clear at this point that he, that when the time the dog he found that the dog was dead, then he realized he probably knew at that point that it was a natural threat and not an actual person that killed them. Well, so I think he he would be more upset if it was a person that did it, or killed the dog. Absolutely, because that's the cruelty of man. But this is just the cruelty of nature, and 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 I think something like that would probably, in Holmes's kind of way of seeing things, it would be just be dismissed as you know fact as a po- and there would be no emotion attached to that whatsoever you know i get that uh, I, I do get it and perhaps it, perhaps in the in the character arc of holmes himself he's older now he's more sensitive who knows what you know if he can if he looks at a woman like this just and, and turns face that quickly maybe you know his emotion towards dogs is changing i know he's had a friendly relationship with dogs but what i'm trying to say and i don't have the facts in front of me i don't have any notes to go by with this so i'll have to go back and look at it but i'm almost positive that in a study in scarlet there was a reference to some sort of like a, a dog being just an experimental subject and that you know it didn't it didn't need or it, it didn't deserve the sort of emotional response that some people put towards them yeah possibly but even it so be- i mean it, it, that's just one i there are far more stories where he uses dogs right like he did in the um where's the what, what's the name of the story um where he gets the dog to chase the the wagon and they, is it the missing three quarter uh, I think you're, you're coming up for this. That's coming up very soon. That's the no, 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 no. old place. Yeah, I know that one. But no, in the missing three quarter, doesn't he use a dog and he uses aniseed and puts on the wheels of the carriage? And that's that's all- right. That's right. Yeah. And, and because they're trying to find out where the uh, the wife, where yeah. the where the athlete went or whatever. Right. So, yeah, he does. OK, but you know what? Let's just forget what I'm saying. Maybe I'm maybe I've got it all wrong. <laughs> I know that there are well, more positive dog things. It just eh. Come up with your uh, facts, and uh, we can discuss them in the, in the finale episode. Well, I think we're going to have to rank the dogs, like the dogs of the canon. I think that's an important category. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Toby's okay. going to be the king. So what else you got, then, uh, on this story? I had, I went 3.5 for secondary characters. So did I. Right. So your, your total, then, 4 and 4 and 3 is 11, and 7 is 18. Boy, we are disagreeing today. You went 18... <laughs> And I went 14. In the last story, <laughs> I was 19 and you were 12. So Interesting. This is good. Well, yeah. okay. Have you got anything else you want to talk about here? Um, I've got a couple more notes, but I don't really need to go into them. I, I don't really. It's, it's curious, though, in the narrative that they don't use the word jellyfish. Was that a term that was used back then? Maybe. But this is Holmes telling the story. Oh, yes, of course. That's right. So... He's not going to say jellyfish when he can say the actual Latin name of the creature. That's right. Yeah, he's got a pretty pretty good memory for stuff like that. So, But, okay, on that point, just before we leave the story, how did you feel? You say that you liked this one to the other home story, the, the Blanche I, Soldier. I did. I found this a much more realistic story. That, I, that's my main issue with the creepy man is that I don't know. Like, I don't believe, okay, I, I believe the guy went to get no, a no, potion no, no, sorry, and it gave him vitality. Man. Not the creeping man. You said you preferred this one to the only other story in the canon that's narrated by Holmes, which is oh, the Blanche Soldier. The Blanche Soldier, yes. Why? Absolutely. Um, I don't know. I just like I just found this. I just like this short, this standalone story with with Holmes. I just I, I just I liked it 
better, you know, like, okay. um, I just wasn't, I don't know, I don't know, like, Blind Soldier was a good, was a good story, but I just like this one a little, a little more, I don't know, oh. it just appealed to me more. All right, no problem. Well, um, we've come to that point where you can choose between doors number one and doors number two. I choose door number two. Door number two. Okay, hang on. I got to load them up here. Okay, right. Oh, you've made a great choice, can I just say. Um, how much do you know about the Beach Boys? Uh, a little bit. You know a little bit about the Beach Boys, right. Well, you know probably more than I do, but one of the songs that I love by the Beach Boys I thought was a perfect fit for this. It's called Country Air. And if you think about how the story begins and Holmes's desire, which I also don't believe in, the, the whole you know the, the country air thing, but that's a different thing. Uh, I thought this this was nice. And it also has a sort of uh, kind of like a minor tone type creepiness to it at the beginning there. There's always a bit of creepiness with the Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just going to let that play in the background here. I think we've done a pretty good job with music in this series. You know, we've basically got, for better or for worse, whether they hit the target or fall off onto the floor of the pub, we've got and have thrown darts at all these stories musically. And I think some of them have really stuck. You know, some of them have been good. But 180. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it, but man, I... I... I just don't buy Holmes retiring like this. It doesn't make sense. It's difficult for me to understand why he would even retire. In this story, he craves the soothing life of nature. And that's a direct quote from the story. I've written it down. But the character is marked everywhere, everywhere in this canon, by a constant need for stimulus and challenge. And I just don't understand how a true retirement is consistent with his character. I just don't get it. In the end, it's really... Arthur Conan Doyle, I would write a story about a jellyfish. I'll just use Sherlock Holmes and stock characters. <laughs> well, you know what? That's exactly what I went and penciled on further. It's like, to me, this feels more likely like Doyle's trying to just give the character up. Like, this is like another way of he wants to just stop writing his stories. He's aware of the inconsistency, but he just doesn't fucking care anymore. He's like, just go to retire, Holmes. Do you know? Just go retire. Isn't, isn't there like a thing, with, I think, uh, in one of the, I think it was the beginning of that, of the last bow, where Holmes is, um, Watson refers to Holmes as being a beekeeper in his retirement or something like that? Yeah. Or was oh, that yeah. kind of like his semi-retirement? Well, he's beekeeping here too, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's, it's still the same, same it thing. It is, yes. I mean, yeah. fine. That, that's consistency there, but I think you're missing my point. Like, as a character, the way Holmes is written as this obsessive, as this high-functioning, obsessive, um, potentially autistic figure... Uh, who needs to have stimulus everywhere he goes. He just decides that he wants to take it easy, have a soothing life of nature. I mean, I don't buy that. I mean, he doesn't go from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony to, you know, to fucking pastoral, does he? Like, he doesn't do that. No, not really. But you got to think, too, is that the place where he is, there's like a boarding, it's, it's, like it's like a school and whatnot. So maybe there's some stimulus for him and then it's enlightening the minds of young, of young men, you know. And Fair enough. Him, and, 
And that ties into what I said in my plot summary. That's the only believable part, I think, to him being retired is hanging around with teachers and lecturers in a school, maybe. Like, that bit might fit with me a bit. But I just the whole, I just think that the whole soothing life of nature, I don't, I don't buy it with what I see of Holmes. But I, I appreciate that Doyle just wants to give it up by now, and this is maybe a way he's trying to do that. It could, it could, pretty much, it could, much be, yeah, exactly. Anyway. I still kind of think the la- the actual story, the last bow, of, you know, World War One spies. I think that's a great send off. But yeah, you're right. It is kind of, and here, here's an example of X Files seasons eight and nine, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay, definitely so, not ten and eleven. That's for sure. Yeah. So let's move on and talk about the adventure of the Veiled Lodger. I can give you a little bit of fact about this one, pal. The Veiled Lodger was published in The Strand in February of 27 and in Liberty in January 22nd edition of 1927. This is the shortest of Watson's stories and it almost has no detection whatsoever. It presents kind of like the Red Circle does. That's what I was thinking at least of a landlady, you know, who just asks Holmes to get involved. The land, the, the lady who is her lodger is kind of despondent over a murder plot that you're going to talk to us about. Many ways mm-hmm. a rehash. I'm really interested to hear your plot summary on this one. So I will give you the Goodreads feeling and then I'll ask you to get straight into it. Yeah. Right, well, uh, Veiled Lodger. Rao gave it four stars with a gif of Deadpool clapping, which I guess is good. I guess. Uh, Saman. Better than Jim being bored? I'm not sure. but Saman says that it's not even worth a single star. The story is dull and boring from the beginning to the very end, and there's absolutely no mystery. Um, Azuma Chan, four stars, uh, with a sad emoticon face, that was sad. And Katie, with a five-star review, call me hormonal, but the ending of this brought me to tears. The only Holmes story to have done it. An excellent wow. and heart-wrenching read. Hmm. Someone wow, likes someone... their Boons and Mill. Yeah, okay. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure. Oh, sorry. Um, Harlequin. Oh, okay. Harlequin. Gotcha. That's what they are over here. Boons and Mill. Sorry, pal. Oh, okay. That's like I've, I've lost. I've lost it, haven't I? I've just... You lost it. You... It's happened. You're in... You're Euroized. Anyway, over to you, buddy. Tell us all about the adventure of the Veiled Lodger. It's 1896, so we've gone back a few years since the lion's mane, which just turned out to be a jellyfish. This story actually contains a lion's mane, and said masculine natural article of hair is also being worn by an actual lion at some point in the story. After another faux verisimilitude opening hype passage from the Journal of Dr. Watson, we find Holmes and Watson interviewing a Miss Marlowe, and during his description of this client, Watson actually uses the word buxom to describe her, tee-hee. An old woman with not much to her estate aside, a house in South Brixton, Miss Marlowe has a single tenant as her source of income, one Miss Ronder. Miss Ronder wears a veil all the time to do some terrible, due to some terrible disfigurement, and for the most part has been a very shut-in, quiet tenant who pays well for her discretion. But recently, Miss Rondaire has, has gone off the deep end, moaning and crying in the night, cursing and the like. One of her outbursts is commonly murder, murder, as well as beast. Not only is her psyche unwell, but her body is failing her too. Miss Rondaire herself is troubled by her own um, past and has sent Marilow to acquire the savvy of Sherlock Holmes. A single name is passed to Miss Marilow and then to Holmes in the interview. Abracadabra, er, adever cavera. I mean, Abbas... Parda. Obviously, this means something to Holmes, but doesn't every, but every obviously constructed clue mean something to Holmes in the end? 
Abbas Parda is an English town where a circus star back in the day who was infamously killed by the lion he kept in a cage. Shocker. Holmes makes the connection to this Siegfried and Royd that, that the circus master's wife, Eugenia, who had, mal- who had been mauled in the lion attack years ago, is the veiled lodger, Miss Rondaire. Holmes and Watson make their visit. Miss Rondaire is living in a tiny apartment above the main floor of Marilow's residence. It is very stuffy and fetid in the small ch- chamber where Miss Rondaire resides. Miss Marilow then tells a story of, sorry, Miss Rondaire tells a story of how her husband was, of course, an awful brute who mistreated animals and his own wife. The porcine-faced abuser ran the circus and kept his wife on a short chain. He ended up in court most of the time for his treatment of the animals in his circus, but as the, so it was no surprise he unintentionally acted out the alternative ending to Born Free when the lion paused its master to death. <laughs> Just doing what a lion does, Rondere explains her only re- respite from Miss Parva's, Mr. Parva's blows, sorry, uh, Mr. Ronder's blows was Leonardo, a circus strongman. Yep, a handsome circus strongman. Let's place bets to see if Miss Rondere got involved with the handsome acrobat. Yes, indeed she did, but this carny love story, while it's still a better love story than Twilight, comes to a bittersweet end when pretty boy Leonardo, lacking the fearlessness and strong leadership of his Ninja Turtle namesake, is a kind of an (laughs) opportunist SOB. A coward who can only really offer aching loins to Eugenia, he helps her come up with a plan to make a club in which five nails reminiscent to that of a lion's paw is constructed. The plan was to take advantage of a moment when Ronder feeds a lion and then use the wooden claw in his head to make it seem like the lion did it. Sure, blame the lion so it can be euthanized immediately after, morons. <laughs> but the lion thrashes and everything falls apart, including the, si- the side of Eugenia's face. Oh. Mm. Leonardo managed to slay his beastly employer and not-so-romantic revi- rival, but the lion goes after Eugenia, uh, makes him forget his courage, and he runs off, not willing to protect her from the lion with a simple blow of the murder weapon. As it goes, Eugenia is near death with half of her face off, but she manages to survive the terrible affair to an extent. But what of Leonardo, who killed her husband but abandoned her? Well, he drowned years later, but now she gets to tell her tale despite her guilt. Luckily for Eugenia, Holmes is an old softy when it comes to justifiable justice outside of the law, but he does not. But he, but he does try to persuade her from suicide. He mutters some rubbish about suffering and patience that is pretty awful to the woman in constant pain, probably dying with half a face. Nonetheless, she hears his words and sends him a via post a small vial of poison she planned to swig. Suffering and patience and all that. How about sharing some of that 7% solution, Holmes? Do you know what? I got to be honest with you here, buddy. I, th- there's a lot about this story that I do not like. But I mm-hmm. thought that, and while I certainly won't go as far as Katie did in her review, <laughs> I, I thought that the ending of this story was probably the perfect ending for this story. Because, let's face it, Holmes and Watson do nothing. They listen and to a confession. That's all they do. And yes. Holmes offers some some good advice, helpful advice, that he, you know, we know that he's reading out what this woman is intending to do. And he says to her, you know, your life is no longer your own to take, or whatever the line is. And I, I, I know it's kind of cliched and hopeful or whatever, but... I think that the ending of this story really does work. Like, I can't criticize the ending because the, you don't need a resolution for a great mystery or a great caper. You need, you need an emotional resolution because this woman is suffering. Her, she suffered her whole life, right? Yeah. And I, I like that Holmes' involvement isn't solving a crime but giving her a little boost of confidence. It is something very different for this character, for this protagonist. Yeah, 
yeah, I, I, I think it is. I, I think it's more that compassion that he's been showing to women throughout the throughout the stories that kind of building up in this particular sense. So I, I think that was a powerful ending for this story, and I do agree that it was the best ending the story could have. And I, this wasn't a terrible story by any means, but it's really a very different story in, uh, in how it's set up. Um, well, but I, we'll, I think for for Walker yeah, we'll Holmes's see. character. Uh, he definitely, his character definitely shines in this particular story, despite his real lack of agency in it. Okay, this is this is going to be an interesting discussion then, because how much does agency inform marking? You know, I, I don't think yes. Holmes and I don't think Holmes and Watson do anything in this story. It's they're they're ephemeral, really. They they really are, apart from the fact that they greatly or he greatly influences her life decision, and that's certainly not ephemeral. Yeah, like, I, I think here's the thing. I kind of found that it was kind of, I mean, it's her life and what she wants to do with it, you know. And he's telling her that she must, you know, stay in her fetid little room and, and suffer and, you know, you know and suffer and, and have patience. Have patience for what? What's he referring to? I, I, I found that kind of angered me a little bit. Oh, you too ambiguous, you mean? Uh, well, no, I just, I, I, I just think it's not really fair to him to judge her and say, no, you shouldn't take your life because you need to suffer a little more longer, right? Well, this I, is it. I, this is what makes Holmes an interesting character, though, because he also takes it upon himself in a case of identity not to tell Mary Sutherland that Hosmer Angel is her stepfather. You know, that's, um, that's him exercising a moral compass that isn't actually right because she's the client and he's deciding what's best for her. He also... Yeah. You know, I mean, we'll get to it again with Shoskam Old Place. You know, like the, the, he many times throughout the story, he takes it upon himself to give moral advice or to make moral decisions for his clients. And I know that you know Ronda's not his client technically, but you you get this, don't you? Like he does have a soapbox sometimes that keeps him distant from the the law and yes. different to the police investigation. So there is something here because let's face it, suicide is a crime. Yeah, it is, yes. right? I mean, self-murder was a crime, viewed as such then. And um, he's he stops a crime from happening in that sense, but his reasons are moral, right? Yeah, that, that's definitely true. It's 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 ambiguous. I, I think that's important. And I think that, that's that why angered I, you, did it? That angered it, you? It angered me a little bit, but then, you know, it is ambiguous. So that's why, I don't know. I just don't think, like, what is she, I guess in my protection of, uh, in my personal perspective, given the way that she is and what she's doing, what does she have to live for? You know, like, but I don't know, maybe she finds God. I don't know. It could be anything really. Like, I, I just yeah. don't, I just don't see, you know, I, I guess it's, I, I guess life is life and life is precious. Maybe, maybe Holmes feels that way in his own, in, in his own way. That's why he makes, you know, he makes rule. He makes in terms of like his morality and, uh, that his own morality that he holds, um, and 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 that he wants to espouse on other people, um, is that I I I think he tries to find not just justice in the law, but also natural justice as well. And something tells him that it's natural justice for her to go on living and not take her life. Like that would be violating the the natural order of things in in the way that he perceives it. Okay. All right. Well, do you want me to uh, cut into that depth? with a little bit of levity here and tell you about Womble and Sanger, who were extraordinary showmen and kind of set the tone for Ronder's pretty excellent company as a ringmaster. Like Siegfried and Roy? Kind of. But let me tell you, um, if you're wondering what circuses were all about or where all this stuff is coming from, 
George Wombo, 1778 to 1850, was the proprietor of England's largest traveling menagerie. It is said that Wombo started his enterprise with two snakes purchased from a sailor on the docks at the Port of London. A skilled marketer, Wombo generated a considerable amount of publicity in 1825 by staging a controversial match between six bull mastiffs and Wombo's two trained lions. Yeah, I bet that was fucking legal. Like, uh, you, you imagine putting up two lions against six dogs? Yeah, that's like that's not. That's uh, not cool. That's not. That's cool. A, that's that's a that's a not above board. That's not. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Uh, but the the lions had names Nero and Wallace. If that makes it any better, um, suggesting that they had a choice in the matter. Maybe I don't know. The public subsequently flocked to see the famed lions, and Wombill built up an impressive collection of animals that included tigers, zebras, polar bears, and two rhinoceroses, billed as the largest quadruped in the world, the elephant expected, accepted. Upon his death, the Times eulogized Wombill by writing, quote, No one probably has done so much to forward, practically, the study of natural history amongst the masses, end quote. Now, in 1853, George Sanger and his brother John formed a small traveling circus. By 1871, it had become so popular that they were able to buy Astley's Amphitheater and stage grand productions both there and at Agricultural Hall, At the while, all the while continuing to tour England. The brothers, who called themselves Lord George and Lord John, attract curiosity and attention at every town that they visited, parading their gilded wagons and eccentric performers through the streets to the circus field. Lord George's wife, who danced with snakes in the lion's cage and had once performed with Womble's menagerie, would often yeah. ride in the lead wagon, dressed as Britannia, with a lion at her feet. The brothers dissolved their partnership and went their separate ways in the late 1870s, each forming his own traveling show. So there you go. Interesting. So there is some pretty excellent company here for Rondo the Ringmaster. Yeah. Although, interestingly, and connected to your own plot summary, kind of, um, Womble's own lion tamer, whose name was Ellen Bright, was later attacked and killed in 1880 by a tiger. Ugh. Seems to have the same fate eh, when you work with these animals. Yeah, I mean, it fucking happens, doesn't it? Yeah, because I was going to say, the movie Born Free doesn't show the scene where the animals kill the, kill, the, kill her, like, <laughs> years mm-hmm. later. No, and that's, you know, in picking my music for today, um, I was, for this one, like, there's a lot of poor taste behind circuses, you know? And I, th- I think we, we would be we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, that, you know, Doyle's idea of the circus... And his pe- the people of his time, 100 years ago, they enjoyed circuses differently to how we do. You know, circuses are, I mean, they're still highly controversial things. And more than they were then, the death of animals and the, the death of people in, in the entertainment business by animals, I think, is, is a real serious issue for us to play lightly with, you know? Definitely not, not. No, I mean, like, come on, let's be honest, right? This is, if we're going to treat this with a serious touch, then we should damn well go back through the series and look at how every fucking woman's been treated and how every minority has been treated and how yes. poor Maria Gibson's been treated as a foreigner. You know, I mean, let let's be serious. That's a total different stratosphere of respect that we should be paying to and reference that we should be giving to, you know, the stories. But here, at least. You know, I, I had to select music that I thought was uh, appropriate because I'd started by thinking about, oh, what Siegfried and Roy, what did they have, you know, for their music? And then I'm like, no, that's not, it's not appropriate. It's just uh-huh. not appropriate. So I think instead of having an end of music, 
I'll have a Jurian music. This is the Procession of the Sardar, which is music um, by a Russian composer whose name is Mikhail Ipolitov Ivanov. I remember playing this back in Sackville, New Brunswick on um, Awake to the Classics. Now, it was orchestral. This here is a recording of the same tune by William Buckles. No, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, that is right. Richard, no, Richard Wishmarsh and the South Shore, South Shore Concert Band playing Sounds of the Circus for lions, tigers, elephants, and camels. So, this is what you're hearing, and I think maybe as we talk, we'll just let it play, because it's about eight minutes long. Good background music choice. Yes, but we'll do this in place of having one at the end. Sorry, man, I'm blethering quite a bit, but I'm uh, I'm eager to hear what you think of this, because you think it's a better story than the last. Uh, well... So looking at the principles here, uh, Holmes and Watson, they're sort of ephemeral, uh, as, we, as we talked about. Conan Doyle clearly wants to build a story around the Veiled Lodger. He does exude some of his worser traits that in this day and age would be that would be construed as on the spectrum, such as telling a disfigured woman with no wealth and no health that she must suffer with patience until the Grim Reaper comes knocking. Um, Watson is strictly an observer in this story. So I give 3.5. Well, you were a point more than me. I went 2.5 because even with Holmes's involvement at the end on that moral level, on that advice to this woman, and I think his compassion, as you as you rightly say, is compassion for her. They just listen. They don't do any more than that. And no. they, I mean, it's it's cool. It's okay. You know, like I like a story like this that gives me an impression of him doing lots of different things. He doesn't need to be Indiana Jones in all these stories. No. But I want him to be involved in the stories he's doing. And he doesn't do much here but sit and listen. And maybe for her, that's a massive thing. You know, it's like it's like the time you give, the time you volunteer at old home at old folks' homes. That's really important to those people. But does yes. it make for good reading? Nah, don't I don't think so. That's definitely true. So, so you gave you gave two you gave two point five and I gave two point yeah. five. Yeah. So what about the investigation? Um I was kinda like he plays up the mystery of the lodger a little too quickly here. Uh, he jumps directly into an info dump about her background and it amounts to the author espousing his carny love triangle to the audience. There's not much for the characters to do in the story, but walk through it. While, you know, the concept of Eugenia Rondaire suffering in her final years, relieving guilt and pain as promise, we're missing a connection with the character that doesn't allow us to see her other than as a weak woman who wishes to take her life. And don't worry, Sherlock Holmes will tell her to bite her lip and take it. Uh, it just feels half-baked to me just to tell this particular story. And so I gave it 2.5. Okay, well, I went for three there because I thought there were nice touches of writing. And remember, our investigation mark is the zone wherein we don't just look at the investigation and the, and, and the story, but also the, the way the story is written. And I did think there were some nice enough touches here to bump it to a three. I mean, we're in the same territory, really, though, aren't we? This is just passable or passable plus writing and the story. Um, it's something different, you know? I mean, it, it's not so much a case as it is a confession, but it is interesting. And it is tonally, I felt... Like, emotionally, I felt that this is a very complex thing. You've got love, you've got betrayal, you've got lust, you've got regret, you've got isolation and solitude, you've got desperation, you've got a lot of emotions going on in this story. And mm. although they're not necessarily elaborated upon in a novel's treatment, they're very, they're very condensed, but they're palpable, I felt, in some of the passages here. And, and you know, I did feel a little bit like... Yeah, I'm getting a tenuous link to a previous case, but it, it's, I don't know, like, there's something about it that hangs. There's a lingering 
thing here, the feature to this in, in investigation. I might not be able to, to put it, but I, I feel like there's a complexity here. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I like okay. three. I don't like it that much. I'm just saying there is something here. Fair enough. What'd you say for perpetrator? I mean, if we can call Eugenia a perpetrator. Uh, I gave three for a perpetrator, um, and this is kind of why. Um, just... Uh... So, Mr. Rondere, we got Leonardo and the lion. <laughs> Leonardo is a slimy piece of work, but he's told us in a rushed exposition that we don't care that he drowns off page somewhere. Ronder is another of ACD's abusive older husband slash father figures, and he's destined for a death and part of an expedition dump. It could be argued that Eugenia is the perpetrator for the reason that she was planning to murder her husband, and that the crime that she had been planning on was making Holmes her confessor and taking her life. Mm. So you went for a three. I went for a solid three. Right. I... I don't know. I mean, so you said something a minute ago about being subjective. And I mean, I guess this is me being subjective. But the thing that touched me about this story was her. I thought her story was interesting. I thought that her frailties were believable um, as a traveling artist, whatever, you know. But the idea of her husband not being what she thought once power was gained and, you know, as the ringmaster and then finding love in the arms of the strong man. I mean, yeah, it's silly, but... Then the way she then the way she played out her life, in what we can only understand and presume was just a, a torment, right? Like as this scarred individual emotionally and physically, there's there's a depth to her, man, that I think would fit in in a, in a, a richer story. And yes, I, she did stand out for me. I gave her a four overall because I was. I was taken by how she was rendered. I thought she was nicely written and atmospheric. And I liked that her character engaged with Holmes when she wouldn't engage with others. And I thought that made it made it interesting. You know, I, there's something about her. She was definitely, for me, the best thing about the story. Like, yes. She could have been... And, and I guess there are people like this. I guess that's the other thing, too. She is the a realistic character for me for, you know i mean if pressberry is a total joke then she is a realistic character for me you know yes women men children who have suffered in their lives whether you know they've been attacked by lions or not they've had you know uh, burn victims you know you got uh, individuals who have suffered like ptsd in in war or conflict zones you've got um, families who have been ripped apart, you know, by love lost and love gained and uh, the death of family members. You have individuals living in isolation. And if you think about... Or the whole thing while there's a trial going on, while there's a whole hearing going on in the States about as well, that also kind of, that kind of victimhood as well. What's that? Well, the big, the big hearing going on in the United States right now regarding uh, the Supreme Court nominee and uh, accusations. Oh, of course, and, yes, yes. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, that, that I mean, Kavanaugh. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's, there, there you go. The idea that if you were to pluck the roofs off of the houses around, you know, everybody's got their baggage. And sometimes just a story of baggage is enough to get you interested, you know? And, yes. you know, because hanging out people's dirty laundry is, is kind of, it's an old, it's an old trick that writers have done for generations and get people interested. I bought okay. into her. I don't know why. The backdrop is ridiculous. The, the circus life and all the rest of it. It's, I mean, yeah, of course it's real, but... 
I liked her. I went four. I'm not going to change my mark on her. I don't know why. It's yeah. it's it's an aesthetic thing, I guess. What about environment? What what did you make of that? Um, there's nothing really groundbreaking. Typical Baker yeah. Street minutia. The South Brixton home of Mrs. Merlo and the Lodger offers some seedy, dark atmosphere. Um, the circus element offered some nice visuals in the mind, connections, but didn't really deliver them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave two for environs. Right, I went 2.5, so we're in the same boat there. And I went 2.5 for secondary characters too because they're only they're only figures in a story that's told to us. Although I did yeah, like exactly. the landlady. I thought it was nice that she had concern. Yeah. That that was my my main point. Yeah, like uh, I I went with two for the supporting cast, but Marilo was a big reason I I, I gave it that, that higher that higher mark uh, because of, of the characters being just simply ciphers for the story. Um, I found like she's kind of like a, in her own way, she's a shrewd older businesswoman, and 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 she like and I like the fact that there's like some nuance of connection between her and Miss Ronder. There's a reason why she's allowing this woman to live in her house, not just because of money, but I believe there's something there that could have been explored further. Um, Almost like a protectiveness, you know what I mean, or or like her gatekeeper, um, and and so for for the gatekeeper of this woman who is basically in wait for Holmes to give her confession, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, let's let's t- should we just maybe read a little bit from the story, seeing as we're we're, we're leaving it now? Yeah. If if you uh, there's a passage you want to share? Yeah. The, well, I, I mean, I, I I do like the ending. I do like the ending. Instead, yeah. Of... Let's let's go to to the ending dir- 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 directly. Do you have the page there? Sure do. Yep. Um, your life is not your own, he said. Keep your hands off of it. What use is it to anyone? How can you tell? The example of patient suffering is in itself the most precious of all lessons to an impatient world. The woman's answer was a terrible one. She raised her veil and stepped forward into the light. I wonder if you would bear it, she said. It was horrible. No words can describe the framework of a face when the face itself is gone. Two living and beautifully beautiful brown eyes looking sadly out from that grisly ruin, did but make the veil more awful. Holmes held up his hand in a gesture of pity and protest, and altogether we left the room. Two days later, when I called upon my friend, he pointed with some pride to a small blue bottle upon his mantelpiece. I picked it up. There was a red poison label. A pleasant almondy odor rose when I opened it. Prussic acid? said I. Exactly. It came by post. I send you my temptation. I will follow your advice. That was the message. I think, Watson, we can guess the name of the brave woman who sent it. So the idea that, you know, the, the inclusion of the adjective brave there suggests something about Holmes's response to what she did, that he, he, he appreciates and has, you know, a real respect for her now. Yeah, there, there's definitely some strong, there, there's some gravity to that last part there. And I definitely agree with you. And that, that to me is like, to me, like, I think this could have been a much better story that would deserve a, a really powerful ending. Like it's been, it's that he's trying to give it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's the shortest story, as I said at the beginning of this, right? It's the shortest story of the canon. So, hmm. uh, prussic acid, by the way, hydrogen cyanide. Oh, I see. With a bitter almond sort of scent or odor. Anyway, that's that. That is the uh, Adventure of the Veiled Lodger. So once again, go through your scores. 3.5, 2.5, 3, 2. And what did you give the secondary or supporting players? 2. Right. That brings you to a total of 6, 9, and 4 is 13. I went uh, 15.5. I had, uh, yeah, 15.5 for me. So a couple more. I liked a couple more than you did. And now... On to Shoscombe Old Place. Would you like to uh, endow us with the plot, su- not the plot summary, the publication info? <laughs> sure. So uh, the U.S. got 
the punch on this one. Uh, Liberty Magazine on March 1927. But then uh, it was published in The Strand in the UK in April 1927. As for our fellows at Goodreads, one says, Story is not good, but not what I have expected either. Eh, it was okay. Pedestrian Sherlock Holmes short story about a horse. <laughs> All right. I don't know about that, but uh, let's see what you make of it. All right. The Adventure of Shoscombe Old Place, then. Let's have a look. Let's have a listen. <clears throat> this is uh, my last plot summary of the canon. Oh, my goodness. I know. Just think about it. And, you're, and, and you, are about, you are about to give yours, too, shortly. Ah, uh, yes. Stables. Horse racing. Shrouded ladies and crypts. Frightened servants, grave diggers, and fortunes on the line. Have Heathcliff and Silver Blaze finally hit the moors for their spin-off, as we hoped so desperately for back in episode <laughs> seven? Well, no, sadly, but Conan Doyle has cross-pollinated this penultimate tale with enough smorgasbord to engage the reader. So strap on your jodpers and grab your shovels, forks. It's time to dig into the plot. My final summary <laughs> of the series. Studiously hunched over his microscope in 221B, lending a hand in Inspector Merrivill's case, Sherlock Holmes cuts the incalculable tension of the story's opening with one of the canon's lamest remarks. It's glue, Watson. Now, if that forced entry wasn't enough to make you long for the golden days, the clunky non-sequitur that follows their discussion of tweed jackets and skin cells certainly would be. Quote, By the way, Watson, you know something of racing? Yeah. These beginnings are really draining the well of readership goodwill. Nevertheless, Watson does know a thing or two about gambling on horses, thank Christ. And Holmes, incoming client, is a big deal in that environment. Horse trainer John Mason from Shoscombe Old Place, Berkshire, I know it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Has <laughs> some concerns about his employer, Sir Robert Norberton. In short, Mason thinks he's gone loopy. As he explains to Sherlock and Watson, quote, when a man does one queer thing, or two queer things, there may be a meaning to it. But when everything he does is queer, then you begin to wonder. End quote. Norberton is up to his neck in as much debt as he is queer, so of course Holmes senses a connection. Shoscombe Old Place is only his estate because his sister lets him think so. You see, she, Lady Beatrice, actually owns it. And when she dies, it will revert to the family of her late husband, leaving Norberton out on his arse, knighthood or not. Mason, currently preparing Norberton's horse, Shoscombe Prince, for the upcoming derby. And if successful, Prince will party like it's 1999 and wipe clean his master's slate of debt. Holmes knows as much about Shoscombe Old Place, thanks to Watson. Mason, however, offers more tantalizing pieces of information. For example, Lady Beatrice used to be so friendly and interested in the horses, but now she just... Stopped visiting her equine friends altogether, Mason included. Now she only rides by in her carriage once an afternoon, heavily veiled and in her own world. As for her brother, Norberton has grown pretty woolly around the eyes and has taken to visiting strangers at the old family crypt at night. He gave away his sister's dog to a local publican after it wouldn't stop its whining. Oh, and the toastiest detail of all, human bones have been found in the Shoscombe furnace. Yep. Oof. Mason came equipped with a saddlebag full of intrigue. Well, enough to hook Holmes, anyway. And speaking of hooks, what a clever cover. Posing as intrepid anglers, Holmes and Watson make their way to Berkshire to investigate. And it doesn't take Holmes long to lubricate the locals, and he soon leashed up that publican's dog, uh, Lady Beatrice's dog, and goes for a walk around the Shoscombe estate. 
Just visiting Gov, honestly. Don't mind us. Deliberately releasing it as Lady Beatrice's carriage comes out. The dog races to meet his doting owner, but flees when a male voice shouts out and insists that the driver push on quickly. Holmes then checks out the crypt, where a pile of bones that Mason noticed earlier has disappeared. Instead, an open coffin with a freshly garmented body is discovered. The readers aren't too far behind in this fair play mystery, to be honest, and although Norberton arrives, sees the gig is up and bears all, it's only narrative formula that requires him to do so. He exclaims <laughs> that his sister died a week earlier from her dropsy, or the weak heart, which led to her dropsy, just to be accurate. <laughs> and by the way, was there ever a less fastidious title for a debilitating condition than dropsy? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like you had like the mumps or something like that. <laughs> anyway, Lady Beatrice died, but the big derby was still some days away. So to hide the truth of his sister's death from his creditors, he collaborated with the maid's husband and hid her body in the crypt. He, the husband, took care of the rest with some amateur theatrics, cross-dressing, and heavy makeup to keep the idea of Lady Beatrice alive for long enough. The dog, of course, knew that something was up when his master died, so it was given away back to the publican's window, where, we presume, the famous song was written about him, you know, how much is that doggy in the window? Anyway. <laughs> well, as luck would have it, Silver Blaze, oh, sorry, Furnace Blaze, no, sorry. Shoscombe Prince did win the derby, and Conan Doyle decided to spare his rotten scoundrel. Sir Robert manages to avoid any judicial penalty for mistreating a man handling his dead sister. I can hear his defense now. Ah, but it was consecrated earth, your honor. It's okay by God, so why are you fronting? Besides, I was going to bury her properly once my horse won the race. Ah, <laughs> isn't it great being rich and male in a Conan Doyle story? <laughs> or today, even. <laughs> or today yeah that's right fuck Conan Doyle stories yeah not that much has changed man if you think about it not much has changed no you're right buddy a bitter a bitter conclusion but that's how it is anyway there we go let's do it let's light the pipes on Shoscombe Old Place Shoscombe Old Pace okay take a nice draft from that uh, from that one nice haul mm-hmm. that's good that's some good weed has some good stuff October 17th, I got I can smoke something entirely different now. You certainly can. <laughs> so that coffee had nothing to do with smoking the pipe, by the way. Uh, it was very good very well timed though. <laughs> it was. So principles. I gave 3.5 for the principles. Okay. Um Holmes has given an intriguing case and has allowed some Holmesian moments. I, his disgust at Norbertson for what he did with his sister's body drives home his marble fires. Uh, again, his own kind of moral judgment happening again here, like it did in the previous story. Uh, I guess some things for him are still sacred, like you know, your something, your own sister and her, and the and this, and I guess the um, the sanctity, the sanct, uh, what's, what's the, the sanctus, her body being sacrosanct, you know, in that kind of sense. But uh, he is clearly enjoying the skullduggery of this case. Um, Watson is again; he's relegated to Holmes's dutiful sidekick. Yeah. 3.5. Yeah, that's my principles. I think that's fair. I was at a 4. I I, I don't really have a lot to add to what you said. I certainly don't disagree. It's it's an adventure. They're both on it. They both do stuff. 
Um, it's not as good as they were in Thor Bridge. You know, they, they lack a, a little bit of stuff to do. But I do like the fact that Holmes is back working with the locals again. That's cool. I always like it when there's a pub and he's going to grease the wheels of the public opinion and get yes. some, you know, he gets that dog on a leash and he's able to take the dog for a walk innocently, you know, under cover of angling. I think that's all really cool. This is a yeah. good, solid Holmes and Watson story. Better than many, not as good as a few. Yeah, I would say surprisingly, like for the, some of the really bad stories in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, there's always, I think, a couple of real highlights in, uh, within them that kind of harken back to the adventures of Sherlock Holmes or even the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes to me in terms of quality. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And this, yeah, I mean, this is a certain, certainly a solid one. Absolutely. So, yeah, I went for a, uh, da, 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 da. you were three, five, I, I was four. So, I mean, there's not much in it, is there? Yeah, yeah, but the, the, whole, the whole trick with him, um, when um, they find out, you know, where they take Lady Beatrice's dog and then launch at the carriage and everything like that, that was that was really well done. That was classic Holmes kind of moment. Yes, and I think you're right. That's classic Holmes, isn't it? Yeah, it really is because it did not surprise me whatsoever that he did that. I was like, okay, cool, but at the same time, I wasn't really blown away by it because it's just something that he would normally – I, I expect him to do something along those lines. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. How about the investigation? I gave it a four. Um, I thought it was set up well. It carried through with excellent intrigue, anxiety, horror, and disgust. Um, I only give a short of a point in terms of the, the writing was was good. Um, and as I said, there are great Holmesian moments in the tale, and it's sprinkled throughout, kind of like the gradually darkening darkening narrative. When I say darkening, I mean that okay, we have like a a, a sister missing. We have. Uh, bones found. There's mm-hmm. always little little revelations that occur throughout the story. It just makes it's just building up to make you know what uh, to make um, Norbertson just seem like this terrible, terrible person. And it gets almost so macabre and ghoulish. But then when they get to the point where they're in the crypt, and then he comes down there, and then he just collapses to their scrutiny and tells the whole story. We get a different picture and a different, I think, way of looking at the situation morally. Um, than we normally would. And I like being challenged that way. And I think the story did a good job with that. So I, yeah. I, I give it a four. I agree. That was exactly the mark I gave it. I gave it a four as well. Um, it does rely on a twist, which is okay. I mean, well, it's it's a little bit lame, to be honest. But it, it does, I think the story overall contains more winning features than it, it you know, the, the kind of sloppy yeah. twist. And it's not like it, an M. Night Shyamalan kind of twist, you know? Exactly, like, it, exactly. And it is a play fair, which means we can we can play along with it. And we're going with Holmes here. We're, we're thinking about things ourselves. I'm sure as you were reading, you knew that there was an imposter in the carriage, right? Which would account for the dog's reaction. And yes. Holmes is... Yes, Holmes is ahead of us insofar as he is um, hes doing things to confirm his suspicions, but his doing things allow us to see what he's doing. And I like the ones where we get to well play said. like that. Yeah, his doing things allows us to see what we are, we are doing. Simple and concise, and yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly how I feel about it. Yeah, um, there's a couple of... Eh, I did, did you pick up on the anti-Semitism in this? No, not really. I never thought of it that, actually. Well, do you remember when Holmes says to Watson that, that uh, uh, Norberton is holding off the Jews? Oh, yeah, so he's referring to the moneylenders. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's true. I, I guess I'm just so probably desensitized by the Victorian, you know, cook culture that we're reading about that that, that doesn't phase me as much as it does. No, it I didn't phase me either. It didn't phase yeah. me, but um, it's, it's interesting that Holmes is the one that says it. That's what I'm trying to get at. That is true, yeah. 
maybe he's been too too much hanging around the locals. Like maybe he heard, you know, maybe he was talking in the pub and talking people up and had to use words like that so that he would fit in, right? So well, that comes on pretty early, though. That's that's, yeah. not, that's not in the pub. No, it's true. Um, what did you for make? Me preparing for it? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, man. You're you're reaching now. I know. I know. You're I'm an apologist. I'm an apologist. Yeah. Um, no, it's anti-Semitic. I, I definitely agree. It's anti-Semitic. There's no way. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But but again, it's like it's a very systemic kind of racism, not a deliberate kind of you know uh, angry racism. If it, I guess if you catch my drift. I, I do indeed. It's no, a, it, of course, it's a throwaway vernacular, isn't it? Yes. Um, see the end of the race. Shaskin Prince wins, of course he does, um, because Norberton gets, as a white male, everything he wants. Um, 80,000 pounds is what he wins. Any idea how much that's worth in today's money? I don't know, like 8 million maybe? Close, 5 million. 5 million, oh wow. Not far off. Um, so, so... So because because now we know what the full amount of, of what he will be receiving are his actions justifiable. That's the question. Yeah, I, I want to touch on something here in the investigation and um, see what you think of it. You see, when Holmes is starting to really heavily suspect Norberton and they're in the crypt and all this sort of stuff, right? Um, Watson says to Holmes, uh, let us. Uh, Holmes says to Watson, let us suppose, Watson, it's merely a scandalous supposition, a hypothesis put forward for argument's sake, that Sir Robert has done away with his sister. And Watson's response is, my dear Holmes, it is out of the question. The note in Klinger's edition annotates this, that Watson is forgetful of the great many upper-class snobs who we've already seen in the, in the canon doing pretty hideous things, pretty immoral crimes. And although it goes on to list some of them, just think about it, right? It, it's quite true. You've got, um, you got George Burnwell in the Barrel Coronet, Baron Dowson in the Mazarin Stone, John Clay in the Red-Headed League. You've yes. got, who else? Baron Gruner, who's got his book on victim, victimized women that he chases after, you know? Oh, God, yeah. Like, why is it that Watson is all about, no, no, of course, this man couldn't have killed his own sister? It's strange, isn't it, that after everything he's seen, 70-odd cases, I believe it's 70-odd cases that's mentioned in the Speckled Band, isn't it, that he's, he's worked on with Holmes, that he he defends the upper class, you know? I mean, there's fucking breeding for you, yeah? Yeah, it's it's curious why he would do that, but I guess it's probably the Victorian um, ideal at the time, you know, of keeping yeah, things repressed and keeping things all buttoned up and everything, and you know, and Maybe. knowing one's place in society and not wanting to question that and not believing that, that it could be done. Well, he probably believes it, understands that it could be done, but he'll he'll put on the 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 countenance that, you know, though that that that, that, that such a thing is impossible just for just for the sake that he feels everyone else needs to feel that it's impossible to maintain the illusion of civility that really is just being repressed here. Mm hmm. Do you want to say anything about Norberton in terms of a perpetrator? I thought he was passable plus 3.5. He's just a guy who's in debt, a rich guy who's in debt. He's rich by looks um, and by inheritance if things go his way, but he's not really rich. But once he wins the race, like, that kind of disappointed me a bit how fucking easy he gets away. But whatever. I mean, what do, I, I what guess do you it's think real, about I guess it's realistic of that and that kind of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Um He's, he's a bit of an enigma for me. Um, he has very little resonance in the story until the end. And even and we're disgusted with his actions like that of Holmes. But unlike Holmes, I don't think we really sympathize with him. 
I wanted to really feel the emotions as well as the ambiguity of Norbertson, but he only appears near the end of the story, and it just feels so rushed. And I didn't really get a chance to get a full swing and sway of the man, you know. I only heard about what they said about him or, or what he did or what's going on with him from Mason, from Holmes, from other sources, uh, from the Publican, for example. And I just feel that he wasn't uh, really fully there as a character. He was very ephemeral. So that's why I gave the perpetrators 2.5. 2.5, okay. I went 3.5 because I admire the lengths to which he went to cover things for the sake of his you know, uh, pretty despicable situation. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I admired, I guess, that there was a bit of desperation behind him. And, uh, but yeah, I agree. I think maybe a 3.5 is a bit generous, actually. I mean, I'm going to stay to it, but because he was of interest to me, but I might have been seduced by the environment of the crypt, you know, and the idea of the, the dropsy that was kind of hanging over his sister and all that. So, I agree that it's probably not worth a 3.5, and you probably are closer to the target there with that one, but I'll leave it where it is. What about environment? Uh, Shoskam Old Place, The Crypt, how did you find the setting rendered here? It's tropey, but it's good footing in a Sherlock Holmes yarn. It's, you know, Bingo. it permeates with yeah. a sense of anxiety that seems more of strength of the writing than actual kind of like pathetic fallacy or poetic atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But there's a sense of anxiety throughout the story kind of gives it that horror feel to it without being overly beyond, you know, going down into a crypt and burn bones and all this kind of ghoulish imagery. Um, uh, I think the atmosphere was strong for the story itself, but it wasn't anything spectacular in terms of writing. So I, I gave environments a three. Okay. Well, well, I went a little higher. I went 3.5 there. Okay. But I agree with your assessment of it. I don't think it's anything miraculous. Like just because you use the word crypt and coffin doesn't make it great, right? No, it's just, yeah, exactly. You have to... Uh, elaborate on those things to make it great. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, how about then? Well, hang on. Before we rush away, elaborate we to are make we, it great. That's a good rhyming thing. Are we missing any any other settings? We've got not we really. Got, our, not the well, pub. We got the, the pub. We really. got the pub. But we don't but really, do we? We only have a mention of it. We don't have a lot of settings here, so I think we're quite fair in what we're doing. I think the word tropey covers it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, because it serves we, its purpose, we do, doesn't we, it? we do get the usual Baker Street. We got the the the, the common inn. We you know we have the the old estates. You know, all these all these tropes from Sherlock Holmes are in this story. Okay, so what about then the supporting players? Do you want to say anything about Mason as a trainer who's concerned about his master, or maybe Lady Beatrice Falder? You want to say anything about them? Well, Beatrice Falder doesn't really appear in the story per se. We only get like the perception of her, and we get the, you know the guy dressed up as her in the uh, in the veil and everything like that. Mason, I kind of liked. Uh, he's seen a concern for this whole situation and and whatnot, uh, but he doesn't really stand out except for his part in the beginning. Um, but I do think let's not skip over that because it is an interesting thing. I mean, this guy's livelihood depends upon how well things are going at Shoskam Old Place. And yes. he, he does go to Holmes with a legitimate concern as a trainer of a very special horse uh, belonging to a very special man who's in trouble and is acting weird. And there's this huge race coming up. Like, I do think his motivating uh, factors are quite, are quite authentic. Oh, he, oh yes. He's a believable client, 100%. 100% but he never really – and he does bring Holmes and Watson to, you know, to Shoshkram Old Place – but at the same time, uh, I never really found that he had a payout in the end, except yeah. perhaps maybe the horse winning, I guess, worked for him, I suppose. It did, but, I of mean, course it, it would, yeah. It doesn't do anything for, you know, for uh, Lady Beatrice, that's for sure. Um, no. The inn owner, I kind of liked. He added some color. 
Um, and he also got the dog into play too. So that was really important to the story. And so there, every character in the supporting cast was, you know, like connective tissue in this. But it really, beyond Mason, um, it wasn't really anything too interesting. And as I, and Norbert Simi kind of discussed as a perpetrator. So as a whole, I get the supporting cast 2.5. Okay, well, well, I, I went for a 3. Uh, okay. maybe, maybe just a little bit more generous than you. So 2.5 for you. That brings your total score. You, add, you made a really good case for John Mason. So I'm going to put mine to a 3. Well, you don't have to, but... No, you know. no. I, I think in retrospect now that... Uh, um, it's a little. I might have been a little too kind of uh, disinterested in the whole because I was trying to figure out Norbertson so much, you know. So I would say that a three is is fair okay. with John Mason and with and 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 the in owner as well. Mm -hmm. It is neat though. The last two stories, okay, perhaps it's derivative, but you get the idea of of a of a not a lower class. Certainly, Mason wouldn't be a lower class, but a lower important figure you've got a landlady coming concerned about her, her her lodger you've got a horse trainer coming concerned about his master you know you've got that and that that's that is interesting isn't it i mean it makes you interested yeah absolutely it, it's uh it's compelling and uh i like to see the, the lower class especially like john mason as you pointed out um you know like he's there because you know it's, his livelihood's affected by this whole situation and this is what brings holmes and watson into their cases is is that the people are real life real life people are well real life in the story world anyways are being affected by you know the issues of the per by the actions of the perpetrators and uh this is kind of you know this is really the beginning of the modern kind of uh, age of uh, in terms of, of narratives of the of the of, of the procedural you know mm -hmm. yes. and and uh you can see that like in so many of its uh incarnations today and so i, I think the supporting cast is very important to the procedural well um your score total comes to 16 out of 25 and i'm at 18 so okay. this is one that i enjoyed more than you and you got again uh, musical selection one or two pick your door uh two Door number two. Here you go. Uh, I think you'll recognize it. It represents the best and perhaps the worst of our friend Norberton. <laughs> on a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. The boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were By the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind my saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle and he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold up Know when to fold up Know when to walk away And know when to run never count your money when you're sitting at the table there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done 
every gambler knows That the secret to surviving Is knowing what to throw away Knowing what to keep Cause every hand's a winner And every hand's a loser And the best that you can hope for Is to die in your sleep And when he finished speaking He turned back toward the window Crushed out a cigarette Faded off to sleep And somewhere in the darkness The gambler he broke even But in his final words I found an ace that I could keep You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Well, it's gambling that gets Norberton into trouble and it's ultimately gambling that gets him out Get of the game. <laughs> so Kenny Rogers, good Good selection there, buddy. Good tune. Yeah, great tune. Great um, tune. Was, if I may interject here for a moment here, I was going to go a brief bathroom break, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss the last story of the Sherlock Holmes adventures. It's a sad moment, but yes, I think that's a great idea. Yes, I think my bladder needs to be empty for, 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 for this. <laughs> okay, buddy. See you soon. Okay. Story. Okay, then. Here we are. The last story of the Sherlock Holmes canon. We need to sit just even for a moment and reflect on this. It's a big moment. It's a big moment, yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot of weight to it, and uh, it's heady. It's heady, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about a, a really good, you know, ale. I'm talking about 60 short stories in almost two years. It's heady because we're both working men. We got other things. You know, we're not professional podcasters, and we don't do this full time. Uh, no. we, we read and we talk, and we meet over and across time zones and other responsibilities. So the fact that we have got here our biggest venture to date, BFG, is, is I think it's a real, real reason for celebration. And I'm really looking forward to our next episode in this where we can have the fun that, I mean, we've been having fun every single show. But when we can really have the fun and talking and thrashing out our rankings and just having an absolute blast. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a Sherlock Holmes fest for sure. It will, but we're not quite there because the retired colorman stands between us and that intrepid show. Well, we're very we're, it's, we're, we're very close to the finish line. We can see the red flag at the, at the 18th. So right. So this this is not going to be this. like this is not going to be like the cross country skiers who drop just before the line with foam in their mouths after doing like 400 miles, right? No, not like that at all. No, because we've been kind of going at a very, very kind of casual pace. <laughs> yeah, six every, six weeks between performances. This is worth like a beer at the end of the race. Okay, well, fine. I think yeah. it's worth. Listen, I think it's worth more than that because you're. How about a keg? I, I, mean, How about a keg? I think I think it's worth even more than that because what you've essentially done in 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 dragging me along. Well, I don't say dragging me, inviting me along on this journey with you, because this was your idea of the series. You know, I had other ones. This is the one we decided to go with. Um, I read my first story and now I'm reading and discussing my 60th story. I I mean, it's been a complete turn for me because I've been inducted and I've been converted um, and I've been, you know, now I'm teaching it. Do you know what I mean? It's full circle for me. It it is full circle for you. Yeah. I'm not, teaching it per se but uh, i'm glad that uh, someone else is you know enjoying the experience yeah so our show is responsible for the boredom of at least 26 teenagers that's pretty awesome i, I think that's <laughs> an accomplishment we never actually had that that for any of the shows that we've done we actually never had even one bored teenager 
So Well, we don't know that. But I tell you one thing. Next show, when we come to wrap all this up, I'll talk to you in a little bit more uh, disclosure. That's not the right word. That sounds like it's all secret. Um, that's not at all the right word. But I'll speak to you in more detail about how things are going in my classroom because I think you'd find it quite interesting. And maybe our listeners would too. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe there, maybe you know that one one listener of her podcast was was a teenager who just wanted to get some research for his <laughs> Sherlock Holmes essay, and then had to listen to us. So maybe, maybe poor bastard, <laughs> poor poor bastard. Right. Uh, that that said, so t- what? Tell talk about the what, what you know about the retired color man before I kind of dissect it. Okay, Adventure of the Retired Color Man, uh, published December 18th, 18, uh, sorry, 1926 in Liberty and the January edition, 1927 of The Strand. And that is the publication information. There's not a lot more to it than that. Um, the reviews, I've got two reviews here. Our friend Raoul of Goodreads, four oh, yes. stars with a gif of David Tennant looking surprised. Is it Doctor Who, David Tennant, or like Jessica Jones? No, I think, it's Do- I think it's Doctor Who. Um, okay. And Colin with two stars. The Adventure of the Retired Colorman was a short and somewhat lackluster story. The climax was over very rapidly, and the mystery behind the story was short-lived. However, it was macabre at times and serves as a nice quick read. Perfect length for a cuppa, as someone used to say. Uh, yeah, we didn't have Cora on today's show. We haven't seen Cora for a while pretty sure she was in episode 19 or 20 oh okay well cora if you're listening keep it up keep having those cups Mm. anyway here you go buddy over to you tell us what this is all about because i gotta be honest you know as a as a novice as a virgin to the series looking through the, the the titles of the stories i was thinking something you know wrongly about color television i was thinking about um i was thinking about like Maybe a guy that works the signals on a railway, you know, a color guy who puts the the flags up and down or changes the signals. I was thinking all sorts of things. I certainly wasn't thinking about a painter, although I probably should have been. It makes makes sense though, right? It makes 100%. It does. It does. So tell us about it. We end the series with a a formula-driven derivative yarn that reminds of the good old days before creeping men became a thing. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Joseph Amberley shows up at 221B, a miserly, a miserly old figure lamenting the lost bonds he so covets that his young friend Ray Ernest has taken off with, including his young wife. But Sherlock Holmes is too busy with two Coptic patriarchs, or whatever that means, and sends mm-hmm. Watson to do the due diligence. Holmes should be proud of beyond Watson here, but when Watson returns from Amberley's fiefdom of Lewisham, he has much to report. Much of significance to report, at least, to the, to the reader anyway. Watson notes the seat number Amberley brought to the local conference, to the local uh theater watson notices in poetic detail every bleeding part of amberley's house the tall dark smoking gentleman outside the inn the fact that lewisham has a big steel big steel vault but nothing not important are any of these details to holmes except when watson did leave out he did appreciate the ticket number though as well as the description of the tall stranger who is barker one of holmes rival sheriffs working for the Ernest family as we turn as we soon to find out the fact that Amberley plays chess gives it away to Holmes that Amberley is not just a, a miser, but a schemer as well. And all misers are, are, are jealous. So naturally, there's something off about all this. Misers are schemers. Misers are jealous. Misers are evil. Remember, if you play chess, that you are evil. Looking for much of love. Mm-hmm. Or Magneto, for example. Smelling something sour. Poor Kronstein. Concocts, poor Kronstein, indeed. You brilliant, brilliant... Uh, strategist who almost brought down James Bond. Almost. Almost. 
smelling something sour. <laughs> smelling, <laughs> try, try that one again. Smelling something sour. Holmes concocts a fake wire from a vicarage outside of Purlington in Nowhere County, Nowheredom. <laughs> we have an amusing altercation with a pompous old vicar and Watson and Amberley as they decide to see what the vicar knows about the missing Bonnie and Clyde. And poor Watson is stuck spending a night in an inn and train ride with an anxious, caustic Amberley. The interminable day of travel with Amberley brings them to London, where Watson gets a wire from Holmes to come to Lewisham directly. Poor Watson has a travel with Amberley again, but when they arrive at Amberley's house, they find Holmes and the tall stranger Watson had encountered earlier is in fact the, as I mentioned, Inspector Barker, a Surrey rival of Holmes that was hired by Ernest, Dr. Ernest Ray Ernest's family. I wonder if Watson experienced some schadenfreude when Holmes greets Amberley with a, so where are their bodies? Out Fox, Amberley contorts and twists in fear with a pronounced scree like that of a velociraptor. As it turns out, Dr. <laughs> Ernest and Miss Amberley were slowly suffocated by Amberley in his vaulted room in the basement, the very place from which they supposedly made off with his securities. The evidence is clear along the edge of the door where Ernest and Miss Amberley tried to tried to to uh, name their murderer. As a result, Dr. Amber, Mr. Uh, Mr. Amberley is is going to go into the to, to the mental ward instead of the of the gallows. But it is but uh, it is a case solved, and while officially it is not the last case, that was actually the case before. That was actually a, the actual last Sherlock Holmes story ever written, um, the Shashkam Old Place. Um, this is a, I, I suppose, this formulaic adventure is a good place for Holmes to lay his deerstalker cap. I suppose so, even though he didn't actually wear it very often in the canon, and that's something mm. that's credited to our friend Sidney Paget. Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of a, um, uh, I guess, a pop culture eccentricity. But that's okay. I mean, that's, that, that's, you know, we should talk about that too next time we, we come to do our rankings in our final, final, final episode. We should talk about our favorite pageant moments or our favorite door steel illustrations. You know, yeah. we, we could do some research along those lines too. For yeah. Fun. Yeah. Okay. Well done. That's it. So your last plot summary is out of there as well, buddy. <laughs> yeah. It was a concise one, but I think it fit the story as small as it was. It did. And I mean, if you be so kind and indulge me for a moment, I'm going to clarify for you a little bit about this two Coptic patriarchs. Oh, okay. So, is this, is this from Klinger? It certainly is. Yeah, certainly is. <laughs> certainly. Professor Corum. Something smells schmauer. Do you remember Professor Corum of the Golden Pinsna, or Pince rather? Oh, of course. Yeah, well, he was engaged in a study of documents found in Coptic monasteries. And, strangely, only in the year 1899 were there two Coptic patriarchs in office. Cyril Makar, head of the Catholic Patriarch, which was founded in 1895, but named no patriarch until 1899, and Cyril V, known as Hannah al-Nasik, who served as patriarch in the Coptic Orthodox Church from 1874 to 1927, with a short respite in 1912. Vladimir V. Bogolmolts suggested... <laughs> Bogomolts, true, suggested that Dr. Watson may have confused the date of the retired colorman when he stated that it occurred in the summer of 1898. Of course, the two Coptic patriarchs for whom Holmes acted may not both have actually been holding that office. Holmes may have acted for both men in 1898, and Watson, writing up the story many years later, simply called them both patriarchs as honorifics to them. Man, I call myself, I, 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 I sound like a hypocrite when I say this, but nerds <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean you know one eh so yeah <laughs> anyway yeah so 
Um, this particular subject of interest to Holmes, which is why he can't go down and check out the uh, excitement in Lewisham, is also a subject of interest to Professor Coram in the Golden Pince-Nez. Wow. I feel that is about as canonically reflective as I want to get just now. Yeah, I, I think canonically reflection, I think that's done for now. So. So. Per, let's, per, uh, principles. Yeah, let's the principles. My mark for the principles straight up was 3.5. Okay. I wanted to give a full four, but I didn't have enough interaction between Watson and Holmes in this story. We had Watson stuck with Amberly, and I, I kind of I liked Watson on his own. I was really excited by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked how he went out there, and uh, he, he 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 had this. You could tell that he was trying to show Holmes he had the same observational thing that that Holmes did, but he got it all wrong because because you know Watson starts kind of like making metaphors and similes about the things that he saw, you know, and he's trying to put, like, he's trying to paint a picture to Holmes, and Holmes will have none of it whatsoever. And Holmes is actually pretty, he's effing rude about it, but I find it really amusing because he says, oh, I mean, I, I don't mean to be so serious, you know, I, you know, like, I know you did your best, you know, and I, you can tell Holmes really appreciates it, and it was a nice, really light moment between the two of them, um, but you don't get any more, more than that. You just get Holmes basically pushing, like, using Watson as sort of like a decoy to push around uh, the board just so that he can kind of outfox um, Amberly. Well, okay, I'm going to pick up first of all on what you said about Holmes's response to Watson because you're right; he is very rude to him. He says, "Cut out the poetry, Watson." When yes. Watson's describing Amberly's house, um, but I mean that's one of the reasons why I like them a little more than 3.5. I like them at a four. I gave him a four because in okay. this story, Watson's agency is pretty vibrant, as you say. But Holmes also keeps him in the dark. And I agree with you that that's not nice. I agree with you that he's not nice to him in this story. And he hasn't been nice to him in all these stories. I mean, Christ knows we talked about that. But here we've got, like, I, I, keep, I find that's kind of interesting. Like, particularly when Watson um, takes Amberly away, you know, he Holmes does keep him in the dark. But he's, he acts effectively towards him when Watson takes him away. Did you find that? Yeah, he he does. And another thing to point out too is that even when he was telling Watson that like you miss all the important details, but it's like but a lesser man wouldn't have got the details that you got. Wouldn't have you know what I mean? So much, yeah. so he kind of said that like he kind of put him on a, a one plane lower than himself. So he he still holds Watson up against everybody else in humanity apparently. Yeah. Well, I guess you know another reader could maybe think that it's not rude because if you actually look at the part in the story um, when Watson's giving, you know, the description of the wall, right? Right in the middle of yeah. the little island, blah, 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 blah. He says, cut out the poetry, Watson, said Holmes severely. He does say yes. severely, though. I note that it was a high brick wall. So, yeah, he is, it's rude, isn't it? Because that, yeah. that adverb severely tells us how he's speaking. And, yeah, it's not, it's not humorous. But it could have been delivered humorously. But then you could tell that he there's a, there's a beat there where he could tell that he felt this, that Watson felt hurt by that probably he could count, he could catch that nuance true on that and then he but then he says like oh don't worry my old friend you know like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you you know you're doing your best based on what you what 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 how you know and perceive things you know mm-hmm. and then he goes on about how like well you didn't see about how what the what the next door neighbor thought of the couples arguing and and all this sort of all this sort of stuff and and did you get the number on 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 there, you know, on the, of the of the seat, and and he, and Watson did get the number on he did, on the yeah. seat. You know what I mean? So which was great. He, so he could tell that Watson is somehow, you know, 
on the level uh, in terms of being a useful tool for him in this matter. Did he not also criticize him or scold or maybe just pass remarkable about not having gone to the pub to talk to people about? Yes. He, yeah. Yes. So he, he, he did one. He did one of those. He, he Watson did not do one of those things that Sherlock Holmes does is go to talk to the locals, either in disguise or as himself to get more information. Mm-hmm. Um, Watson just focused on solely on the, um, I guess, the connections to the case physically where they went and all those places and everything like that trying to absorb every detail possible. But you he see, just... like the fact that this is why I'm interested that you went 3.5, because everything you're saying, the fact that Watson does the reconnaissance, the, the fact that Watson feeds back, like, and they have this rapport, they have this conversation and the agency, like, doesn't that warrant more than a 3.5 in your eyes? Yeah, I guess, I guess. I mean, the story itself was pretty much like, I found the story pretty simplistic and it was just kind of like a, a, a decoy kind of thing. I did appreciate the twist ending and everything that not really the twist ending, but what I, I, after I read the story, I appreciated, I think I liked it more after I read it because I thought about how this, the, um, how Holmes was basically moving them around like a, a chessboard himself. And of course, chess being like a metaphor in the story, you know, for scheming yeah. Holmes is Holmes is a schemer as well, but he's, but he's not a bad person. He's not a miser. And that's the difference between him and Amberly. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I, I found them, I found, um, I, I, like, yeah, I, I guess it's fair to say a four it would be more deservable. But for, for some reason, I, I just didn't. I, I wanted a little more interaction between Holmes than than okay. and Watson. But then I forgot that you met. You know, I know you mentioned it. That really, this is probably the most kind of interaction with Holmes and Watson together on a case in a long time. <laughs> so, so I think reason at four is fair. I'll right. I'll, I'll accept that. Okay, I mean, I'm not trying to pressure you, of course, but what about no, the investigation? No. I went 3.5 for the investigation. So did I. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was good, but it w- it was you know, nothing remarkable. What what's no. remarkable is that Watson does it like he did in. I mean, this is a mini, very mini, uh, Baskerville, isn't it? In a way, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it, absolutely because you have like a, someone who died, and then you have Watson investigating the case himself and going on his own and reporting back to Holmes and everything. And then Holmes kind of doing his own thing in the background. And it's very, yeah, it's a kind of a, it's a Baskerville in, uh, in, in miniature. So what about the perpetrator? what do you make of Amberly? Amberly? Uh, he, he was an annoying man at first up front. He was very caustic and stuff. And I could see why his, his wife left him and ran off and ran <laughs> off. Um, and, but, and then, you know, like, but then we're, we're told that he's miserly. We're told that he's a schemer straight up from, Holmes, you know, and, 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 and then it just kind of builds up and builds up. Okay, this guy's not a nice guy. But then you get the confused episode at the vicarage. I'm like, what does the vicarage have to do with anything? So Arthur Conan Doyle did, did a really good job, I think, of uh, kind of offering a red herring there in its own way. Very, very vague red herring. Yeah. But, but there was something there that this wasn't seemed right about the case. And then everything connected, you know, at, in the end really well. That it wasn't, it didn't feel like I was being just like thrown the answer like out of nowhere, pull, pull, pull out of if uh, ACD pulled out of his ass. He revealed he revealed through me thinking back on the story how yes, of course it's Amberly. He's the one that did this, and everything makes sense. So he came across as a credible villain, a hundred percent. But I would like to see him be a bit more villainous. I, well, I did like that see, moment though, where he kind of sheds his person suit. I guess you could, you know, as I used uh-huh, that term before, yeah, when yeah. when it's revealed that he's the killer, and he does, he just, he just, he just when it's revealed, he just confesses right away. You know, he just basically turns into this monster and goes, nah, you know, you know, you know, you know what I mean, and and then he reveals to be the monster. 
but that was a great that was a great impression by the way oh you're very welcome and it just feels that like I, I wanted a little bit more from Amberly, a little more, I guess, nuance. So that's why I only gave a 3.5 for the perpetrator. Okay, I went for a four. I think that you're you're right to a point. I do think that he is, uh, I mean, he, he the way he's described to us, uh, first, uh, Watson says he looked like a man who was literally bowed down or bowed down by care. His back was curved as though he carried a heavy burden, yet there was not the weakling that I had first imagined, for his shoulders and chest had the framework of a giant, though his figure tapers away into a pair of spindly legs. It made me think of the planter's peanut man, you know? <laughs> once I got that in my mind, I, I couldn't read it any other way, but the fact that, that, that he transformed... That's scary. Have that guy... Have that guy coming at you well the fact that he transformed part of his house into a death chamber like that's that's actually aping not aping sorry probably referencing um this guy in chicago i don't even know if it's in this book i think it might be this guy uh in ee e. holmes who yeah it, i remember that hearing about that story yeah he bought a big property in chicago and just turned it into a death house you know and like this there's some real creepiness to that like and i the whole idea that he goes to holmes first and asks for help like it's a total psychopathic thing to do like you're not as smart as i am i'm fucking josiah amberley like I'm yeah gonna, like he doesn't even need to go he just does it to kind of front and to create an alibi for himself in a way and yeah that's true it that's is true. that see to me that's the scheminess that you say isn't there there's and then like he's just oh i'm caught i'm gonna kill myself with this this uh, uh potassium cyanide he tries to yeah, kill himself the with. cyanide pill yeah like that's i think there's a I agree with you that it's quick and it's abrupt and he doesn't have the nuance of a real great villain, but the story is rather short, you know? He yes. is, he's a pretty despicable creature, this guy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're kind of like, we're kind of, uh, there's like, I guess the veil is on, is, is on, on our faces when it starts and we see him through kind of like the, the idea as a client. So we're, we're, we're naturally kind of um, uh, inclined towards him and it, in, in a way, but then he just gets kind of annoying as he's been stuck with Watson is stuck with him, and then you start wondering what's going on. And then when the reveal happens, like the painting, the gas chamber, all yeah. that stuff puts together. And he's yeah, he is a quite a piece of work. So um, yeah, I think um, because this was was one of the last stories I read a couple of days ago. I I I, I think that uh, you know for this guy in particular, and because this is the last story, I want to make sure you know everything is served right here. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to give uh, the perpetrator a four uh, as okay. you did. So I, I've talked you up on two points. Wow. Maybe we'll agree on this one. Um, the environment could have been much more interesting yes. I thought, than it was. I gave it a three as it is. As did but, I. Uh, okay, cool. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I thought it could have been more because you have these hints of this real grotesque uh, Poe type engineer's thumb thing going on, but we, yes. we don't. We don't get it in the full color that we do when Victor Hatherley goes out in the engineer's thumb. You know, we, we just don't get that coloring to it. The yeah, note, by the way, the note on H.H. H. Holmes, uh, his name was Herman Mudgett, but that was the name of the guy who in Chicago bought up the hotel and turned it into a death trap, basically. There's a huge extended annotated point here about it. Um, suggesting that Amberley modeled his room after those in the well-publicized murder castle of H.H. H. Holmes. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but it is interesting. And um, yeah, it's there, it's there should you want to look into that potential suggestion. What about then, to finish off our pipes, what about the secondary players here in this story? We've really only got Ray Ernest, uh, and he's not in it, 
because like the wife, he gets gassed. We've got Barker, Holmes's rival, which is a strange sort of thing to include in the story. What did you make of that? I thought Barker was uh, intriguing. And like when you first meet him and stuff, you're wondering who, what he had connection that he has to. Obviously, he has something. So you're automatically wondering about him. And then you have the whole incidence of, you know, of, descri- of, of Barker describing, you know, how like Watts, he saw Watson leaving the house and going, you know, going through the window and stuff from the basement and all that sort of stuff. And, and then grabbing Holmes by the arm when Holmes tries to get in there and stuff yeah. like that earlier earlier on and and uh, I it seemed like if this was a bigger a longer a longer story I think Barker would would, would have been a great addition you know um, to the dramatis personae of the story. Well, even um, if even if he had been flushed out a little bit more so that we could buy him as another figure in the underworld of crime in England or whatever, do you know the way yeah, that he, Holmes he, has he, done he, with some of his other little. Yeah, he or or he could have been a really great red herring for this story because it obviously yes, wasn't going to be the true. pompous. Yeah. It was it obviously wasn't going to be the pompous vicar. You know, yeah. I kind of enjoyed that guy's character. But see, I'm wondering. But but I guess I want to give a full four to this to the supporting characters. Where I only gave three point five. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted a bit more from Barker, and I wanted a bit more from Ernest and the Missy and Mrs. Amberley, and I also wanted a bit more from uh, the vicar as well. Because um, like, why would a vicar, you know? I just think the way we had the, the vicar reacted to someone sending a, a wire, like he, 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 he was upset by it, but he wasn't overly concerned about it. You know, yeah, like yeah. it was just, I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of him. What did you make of the vicar? Well, I made exactly what you said, much like the other characters that are in the supporting cast, they're underdeveloped a little bit for me. I like them. And I think in a bigger story, they could have done more. feels like we say that every second episode. <laughs> I know. It's the nature of Doyle's creativity. He does create characters that are really interesting and I guess it's a testament to the longevity and, and the, the appeal of the stories that we want them to be more than they are, you know? Yeah, I, I, we, we want more of them, I think. That's kind of yeah. what I think what Sherlock Holmes as a whole is all about is you want more of, of what you already have. You want more of the uh-huh. world because it's so intoxicating w- yeah. when you enter it, you know what I mean? Like, think about it. Like, back in the day, you know, when you read, like, stories about, you know, novels and literature at this time you know we had like uh, the brontes and you had jane austen and you had like you know uh um uh what's his name the guy who did um count of monte cristo and uh dumas yeah like you had adventure writers like those but i think holmes is one of those great kind of uh characters that just is like it puts you into a whole world you know i think it's one of the main reasons people like holmes why people love batman so much is because Homes in London and the criminals and the, and the people in it are, you know, are very attractive as a whole. They, they fit their own universe together. We're just as like, you know, like Gotham City is like its own character in itself. The environs of Homes and the people in his world um, help paint a bigger picture. And you want more of it, you know, like you get like a, a couple of drams, but you want to drink the whole thing down. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way to end on it, I think, actually. <laughs> your, your score was an 18 for the retired color men, and mine was 17.5. I went for a 3, not a 3.5 for the secondary characters. So Pretty good for the last story. That's it. That's us. Finished. That's it. Well, we're finished. The, we're, we're finished the heavy lifting, and now we get to, now we get to sit back and, and create, some, create some rankings. And behind the scenes now, over the next couple of nights, we'll, we will... Um, We'll attend to that task and discover who is going to do what, what we're going to rank, what categories we can suggest. And our finale to lighten the pipes will be, I think, a, a great lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. we got to think of some ideas as to, uh, I guess, almost like segments we can present, you know, in the finale. 
in terms of how mm -hmm. we perceive the world of Sherlock Holmes, the novels, and everything around it. But as a last goodbye to the retired colorman, of course, it's our last musical selection of the canon. So what do you want, door number one or door number two? I'll go for door number one, Monty. <laughs> door number one. Okay, well, here it is then, the song that you selected um, to represent this Hosea Amberley and the terrible, terrible thing that he did in the story. It's Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I fought the law and the law won. If we consider the law being Sherlock Holmes, that is. I thought, is, is that a Clash song? Uh, not originally, man. Interesting. Cool. Put it no, on. You did Buddy Holly in the crickets. Ah, interesting. I thought you knew that. No, I did not. bit of a misnomer because Holmes isn't technically the law. <laughs> this is more for Amberly. Yeah, exactly. But, he you know, but, he tried he tried to pull the he tried to pull the wool over. Yeah. And that's a but ballsy Holmes thing is, to do. Yeah, but Holmes is kind of the law, I guess in his own kind of way. Of course not he like is. in a like a special Stallone judge dread, I am the law <laughs> Well no, not like that, but um, <laughs> it is just quite ballsy, isn't it? And what is it that Holmes says? Like, why did he do it? He says pure swank or something, doesn't he? Pure swank, yeah. Because he thought that he could outfox Holmes. Because he wanted to prove that no one's going to. I'm going to get proof that no one's ever going to find out what I did. Because I'm going to. I'm going to put it by Holmes himself. Yeah. Well. Ultimately, he did fight the law, and the law won. So there you go. Today's stories then, Thor Bridge, we both liked it. You two points more than me, 22 to 20. The Adventure of the Creeping Man, I liked it seven points more than you. You failed it. <laughs> you failed it. And I went for a 19. I, I appreciated its its uh, silliness a little bit more than you as a, a refreshment, I guess. Um, <laughs> the Lion's Mane, uh, you liked that considerably more than me by four points. I almost failed it, but you went for an 18 to my 14. The Veiled Lodger, we're... Two and a half points apart. I admired the characters, I think, a little bit more than you did. Um, you went for 13 overall. Yeah. And I, I thought that was an exposition deal with that story. I just yeah. There was just something off of it that I just didn't get. Fair enough. Um, I got, I'm actually just doing the math on that one again. Let me see. Six and six is 12. And four is 16. I knew I made a mistake on that. <laughs> I apologize, which one, which one is that, the Veiled Lodger? The Veiled Lodger. You were four and three is seven, and six... Wait, wait, that's not right either. Four and three is seven, and seven and six is 13. No, that is right. Okay. You were 13. Yeah, that's correct. And I'm five, uh, five, seven and a half. Yeah, that's right. So I'm 14 and a half, actually, not 15 and a half. But still, I liked it more than you. Uh, Shoscombe Old Place, I was at 18 and you were at 16. And just there with the retired colorman, we almost came... Um, photo finish there with you leading out with an 18 over my 17.5 and that's us Ooh. and I'm scrolling up the list here buddy uh, I'm going to send you this document so that your rankings you've got them clear in your mind as you go to do your final ranking because man there's a lot of figures here in these seven pages of text <laughs> yeah the thing, thing is though when we come down to it I guess we can discuss this like what do these numbers really mean what do these course, rankings yes. mean 
Well, because I think I think they're going to some... mean what they mean. As an index, we're going to have to look at our top stories, but then as our aesthetic, our actual overall ranking, that will just be informed by the index, won't it? It's true. Yeah, that will help inform our final decisions of, on, on the ranking. Yeah. Well, look, pal, it, it's been fun. Uh, this this has been awesome, but it doesn't feel like a goodbye yet because we're going to be back in a couple of weeks' time to do our finale. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It's only 12.36 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here. And think about it. That's usually about the time that we usually have if we only do like three or four stories in a row. And we got six stories done in that time concisely. And and if I may, and if I may say... Um, not with a lot of, uh, you know, the regular foibles. Well, I don't know. I, th- I think I think we do, whether it's four, whether it's three, or whether it's six, I think we do this story as a service. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I'm glad it was these six stories that were the ones that we went quickly through. Because if I, I wouldn't have wanted to move this quickly through the context and, you know, the opening details of some of the earlier stories that deserve more attention, I think. And I don't yeah. think I'm, I don't think I'm doing the memory of Conan Doyle any disservice by saying that these like later stories aren't the greatest ones. He'd probably agree with you. I think he will. I think he'd be, yeah, I think he'd be delighted to agree with me. His own list, by the way, we'll discuss that next episode too. His own oh, list of favorite stories. Uh, he, he ranked 12 and then I believe he added an extra seven to bring it to 19 stories uh, that were his favorite. So we'll talk about that in our yeah. finale as well. So from me over here, it's uh, goodbye, BFG. From here in Ottawa, it's a uh, good day as well. All right. So we'll catch you back here in October in a couple of weeks' time to finish off lighting the pipes. Have a good one, buddy. You as well, my friend.